History and Current Events program from a cultural perspective. We find this program necessary because Hosea 4.6 states my people are destroyed for the lack of knowledge. But we as a people will turn this around. Proverbs 4.7 states wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom. With all thy getting, get an understanding. Again, welcome to the program this evening with your host, Brother Elliot and Brother Richard. The number to reach us to join the conversation this evening is 215-490-9832. That's 215-490-9832. We're streaming live at several locations. You can go to timeforanawakening.com, which is the homepage, and catch the live stream at that location. You can go to www.blacktalkradionetwork.com forward slash time for an awakening. Again, that's www.blacktalkradionetwork.com forward slash Time for an awakening and catch the live stream there also. You can go to a bb2me.com. That's A-B-I-B-I-T-U-M-I.com forward slash time for an awakening. They stream from Ghana and the live stream ought to be playing there. Or you can download the TuneIn radio app to all your devices. TuneIn is a free radio app. In that TuneIn search, search engine, just type in time for an awakening. There you'll see the icon. You can stream the program live even into your car if you had the Bluetooth capabilities or the auxiliary connection. Again, it's time for an awakening radio program with the live stream on the TuneIn app. Drop us an email at timeforanawakening at gmail.com. Again, that's timeforanawakening at gmail.com. Time for an awakening also has a fan page on Facebook. In that Facebook search engine, just type in time for an awakening radio program. There you always see interesting content being posted daily by myself or Brother Richard. And do me a favor, before you leave that page, just hit that like button. That's Time for an Awakening Radio Program with the fan page on Facebook. And Time for an Awakening Media is also there. Always full of the latest podcasts of the different programs on Time for an Awakening Media. Interesting articles that you can read, download at later times, and share with your friends. Also check out that Time for an Awakening Marketplace in our partnership with the BB Toomey. Always interesting things in the marketplace all the time various African language classes, classes on education, economics, social systems, health, and much, much more being taught by professors on both the continent and in the diaspora. So again, make that one of your favorites. Put that in your address bar. That's timeforanawakening.com. Timeforanawakening.com will take you straight to Time for an Awakening Media. It's 7.08 on this Sunday edition of Time for an Awakening, December 18th edition on this uh, winter night, Sunday winter night, and we're in the Sunday edition of Time for an Awakening. Our guest this evening in conversation, Washington, D.C. journalist, author, and educator, 
Sam P.K. Collins will be joining us this evening uh, to discuss several issues. Uh, uh, Brother Collins was at the uh, Institute of the Black World's uh, midterm uh, town hall focused on effective black coalition building. Also attended the uh, African U.S. Africa Leaders Summit that happened this week in Washington, D.C. We'll talk to uh, our guest this evening. Washington, D.C. journalist, author, and educator Sam P.K. Collins on some of these things, hot topics this evening. You can always join the conversation by dialing 215-490-9832. That's 215-490-9832. We'll be right back to get the program started after a brief word from our sponsors. Mr. Moderator, our distinguished guests, brothers and sisters, our friends and and our enemies. (laughs) Everybody is here. You are listening to Time For an Awakening Media, part of the Black Talk Radio Network. For podcasts or live programming, hit them up at timeforanawakening.com. All Insurance Incorporated, an African-American owned and operated insurance agency in business for over 20 years, located at 231 Southeastern Road in Glenside, PA, with other offices in Germantown and West Philadelphia. Call now for commercial insurance quotes, homeowners insurance quotes, automobile insurance quotes, notary and tax services, representing over 15 major A-rated insurance companies, offering a discount on all notary services when you call in for a free quote. Call this number, 21. 215-885-2444. That number is 215-885-2444. 215-885-2444. All Insurance Incorporated. Before your roof becomes unruly, call Dooley. Dooley Brothers, specializing in shingle, rubber roofs, gutters, downspouts, and vinyl sidings. Call for your free estimate today, 215-224-3882. That's 215-224-3882. Dooley Brothers Roofing, the roofing experts you can trust. That number again, 215-224-3882. 215-224-3882. Before your roof becomes unruly, call Dooley. RG Electrical Inspections provides electrical inspections for realtors, licensed electricians, and homeowners. Licensed and insured underwriter, serving Philadelphia and surrounding area. Call today, 484-268-9837. Overworked? Suffering with an underperforming company, headache customer, staff, or vendors? Or are you a startup who wants to get it right the first time and avoid the costly mistakes? We turned a $24,000 a year odd job handyman service into a seven-figure high-end custom home builder and commercial contractor licensed and operating in three states. This is just one transformation created for entrepreneurs like you in various industries around the country. Not what you're used to from accounting and business consulting? Well, welcome to New Business Solutions. If you're ready to go beyond advising, coaching, and training and get implemented results, call 301-244-9072. 
Let new business solutions apply the best comprehensive administrative accounting, operations, human resources, management, sales, and marketing to help you actualize your vision for yourself and your company. From anywhere nationally, call 301-244-9072. Spelled new as in numerous on your device right now. Book your free consultation at newbusinesssolutions.com. History is a clock that people use to tell their political and cultural time of day. It is also a compass that people use to find themselves on the map of human geography. History tells of people where they have been and what they have been, where they are and what they are. Most important, history tells a people where they still must go, what they still must be. The relationship of history to the people is the same as the relationship of a mother to her child. From antiquity to the present, our people need to develop a new paradigm. It's time for an awakening with your host, Brother Elliot. Sundays, 7 p.m., Fridays at 8 p.m. For podcasting or live program scheduling, hit us up at Time for an Awakening at gmail.com. Welcome back to Time for an Awakening. Again, it's 7.13 here in the Sunday edition of Time for an Awakening. Before we get started with our program, I want to welcome in my co-host, Philadelphia activist and tour guide at the African American Museum here in Philadelphia at 7th and Arch Street. Brother Richard is with us. Brother Richard. Yes, sir, Brother Elliot. How are you, sir? I'm doing fine. I'm as as always. Um, looking forward to having this dialogue around the two favorite uh, topics, uh, which I think are very important or really uh, upsets me. You know, um, the midterm elections and what's happening out of that, and this this what happened down there in D.C. So, um, Brother Collins, uh, uh, I hope you don't mind me getting a little passionate. In China, and also extractive, and uh, as we continue on this dialogue, you know, before before we get started uh, with our guest uh, Richard uh, this evening, I want to uh, let the listening audience know: time for Awakening Family and the Black Talk Radio Network family that uh, the loss of uh, Dr. William Rogers, host of uh, Black Reality Think Tank, uh, may transition earlier in the week. Um. Valuable member to the Time for Awakening family. His uh, popular show on on Time for an Awakening, the Black Reality Think Tank, and also spawned a few other shows. Um, the elders assigned Kofi, and he had another program that was on for a brief period. But it was a huge loss, uh, losing the intellect of Dr. Rogers. We plan to have a um, memorial of him. Hopefully next week I want to talk with uh, Brother Oshi and uh, get a few things together because I met Dr. Rogers. He became a part of the Time for Awakening family through Brother Oshi. Uh, and there's a lot of uh, folks that Brother Oshi uh, knows that uh, that uh, we kind of want to put together a, a uh, send-off and tribute to him. Um, so hopefully we can put that together by next week. And uh, let the listening audience know, uh, again, the loss of uh, Dr. William Rogers, host of the Black Reality Think Tank. To his family and friends, um, may they continue to keep him in memory and to us in the community recognize 
that in our physical form, another library has left us. Hmm. Wow. And uh, we're going to listen, we're going to continue on the things of uh, the Dr. Rogers was doing, uh, continuing to get out the information, continuing to spread information. And, uh, that uh, name of his program is something that is needed all throughout the country. Think tanks in all of mm-hmm. these cities, these issues being in the forefront of our community needs to be discussed. It's too many of these areas, including certain areas of black media that don't want certain topics discussed. Uh, that's not the our modus operandi here on time for an awakening. We want all of these issues discussed and aired in the, uh, court of public opinion among our people because they need to be uh tonight our guest this evening been with us on a couple of occasions before and we're happy to have him back washington dc journalist author and educator brother sam pk collins is with us brother collins how are you sir doing well peace and blessings i'm happy to be back on this program glad to have you back with us with myself and brother richard Yes, sir. How you doing there, Brother Collins? Doing well, Brother Richard. Doing well. Mm. Thanks again. Brother Collins, you know, uh, you kind of had a busy week this week at that uh, uh, U.S.-Africa Leaders Summit. Uh, We're going to get to that, and uh, uh, that's going to be a a part of the dialogue, probably intertwined uh, with the the, uh, Institute of the Black World hosted a post-midterm uh, election town hall and it was the focus of it was effective uh, black uh, coalition building uh, that you attended it was um, I think it was uh, late late last month wasn't it it was after it was well, uh, give us that date on that uh, brother Collins uh, it was November 12th okay okay um, November 11th but it was a week after the the, the election okay um, we we kind of want to go into that because you were a journalist there. You've seen all the people involved. Uh, you heard the conversations. Um, not only was the election or the results of the elections discussed, uh, but according to uh, uh, the piece that you wrote, let me read uh, a portion of it. It says the town hall was organized by the Institute of the Black World 21st Century. The theme, the 2022 midterm elections impact on the state of black America and the pan-African world. But topics included and ran the gamut from voter mobilization uh, and civic education, anti-black immigrant sentiments, neoliberalism and imperialism, local and state level organizing, engaging the youth and preventing the over-policing of communities. So it was several important topics that was, that was discussed beside the politics of it. But uh, give us an overview of the uh, town hall meeting, Brother Collins, and then we'll kind of get into certain things. Yes, sir. The town hall, like I said, took place a couple of days or a week after the election. By that time, the Georgia runoff had not happened yet or was in process of happening. So the discussion was mainly around assessing 
how black people once again were at the forefront or how black people performed as far as voter turnout and what the strategy is moving forward and more so assessing what the House and the Senate look like. So a lot of the discussions revolved around that. And whereas in the days before the election, black people, at least black people who are beholden to the Democratic Party, believed that there was going to be sort of like a red storm or a red wave because of black people turning out, in particular, black young people, there wasn't much of a red wave as possible because the GOP being as concentrated and homogenous as they are, they spent the last two years between Biden's victory and November passing um, voting laws and changing district maps to pretty much ensure that they have more power. So there's always been this message around voting, voting, voting. And the, and the Democratic Party and the black operatives within it have ostracized those of us who are um, not going to vote or those of us who are more independent-minded. So there wasn't much of that during the conference, but it was more so about how to build upon the victory that we saw and how to consolidate power, and how to demand more of the Democratic Party. One thing I will say is that some of the panelists, Dr. Greg Carr of Howard University in particular, was very adamant about reminding us about how Black ideas got co-opted by the Democratic Party. If you look at the Gary Convention of 72, after that happened, all of the nationalist fervor that we had you know, with black people becoming governors of, of, of uh, not governors, but mayors of cities and things of that nature, and the CBC just being formed, they took that and pretty much integrated the black apparatus into the Democratic Party. So Greg Carr was very adamant about bringing that up. And he was also adamant about us, you know, as black people demanding more of the Democratic Party. So, but beyond that, there wasn't really any talk of forming an independent party or moving independently. It was more so about planning to consolidate power and pressure Democrats. As far as the whole Pan-African part, it wasn't much more, it wasn't as much as I I would have expected, you know, uh, in terms of Pan-Africanism. You know, we did speak about Africa. They did speak about Africa, but when it came to Africa, it was more so about how could the U.S. better help Africa rather than exposing the truth about the relationship between the U.S. and Africa. So it was still from a, from a U.S.-centric point with the assumption that the U.S. government is for us and that we have a fighting chance in terms of, you know, going along to get along to get what we want. It wasn't as radical as it should have been. Uh, I will give credence uh, to another panelist, uh, he's with. Uh, he's formed a party of working people. Mind you, it's multicultural, but uh, this party, uh, they are of the mindset that black people have to have more of a class consciousness. So in that regard, there was a lot of discussion about the destructive policies of uh, President Bill Clinton and those who came before him and after him and how that pretty much set us up as black people to... Uh, have more economic strife than what we bargained for. So there was that. But in terms of a real hard pan-African independent focus, uh, 
this event was not built for that, I don't think. As a matter of fact, I think that there were much more panelists than there should have been, but um, it wasn't really built for that. Tamika Mallory, she was one of the panelists. She left early to catch a plane, but she really did uh, pay homage to the young people because the young people, as they always do, they showed up. Uh, I would say this generation of young people haven't seen what Donald Trump brought. They were more gung-ho about voting. So there is that power, but at the very same time, there is a miseducation about what voting does and about how to organize around that in a race-conscious way. And institutions, I'm not going to say the IBW in particular, but Democratic-funded institutions are confusing the minds of the young people and tricking them into believing that America is a multicultural um, haven. You know, we look at Trump as being an anomaly and people, they don't want to go back to Trump that they're so uh, enthusiastic about doing anything to not get there. But they don't see that we are not organized enough as a people and we are not conscious enough to really do something at a local level the way that they said we should have during this program. Uh, you, you mentioned a few of the uh, 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 folks in particular when you mentioned Dr. Carr and uh, Tamika Mallory. Um, according to what you've written out, let me uh, read a few of these others that participated. Hillary Shelton, uh, the NAACP National Advisor. Uh, Melanie Campbell, President of the National Coalition of Black Civic Participation. Uh, you mentioned Tamika Mallory, uh, a pastor, Michael McBride, a director of Live Free Campaign, Janice Mathis, director of Council of Negro Women, Melvin Foote, president of Constituency for Africa, Dr. E. Faye Williams, national chair of the and CEO emeritus of the National Congress of Black Women, uh, Maurice Mitchell, director of Working Families Party, uh, a Reverend Sheraton Todd Yeary, uh, Vice President of Rainbow Push, uh, journalist Roland Martin, uh, Dr. Julian Malvo, uh, also Ron Daniels, uh, and, and a few others written here. Um, uh, <clears throat> Brother Sam, the um, before I kind of veer off into some of these subtopics that they talked about, uh, let me go up to the, uh, one of the paragraphs that you wrote here. It says, panelists agreed that the election results are a cause for celebration. Still, they recommend that black voters unite uh, and leverage their political power to successfully advance an agenda while now, while the Democrats control the House and the Senate. So the overwhelming sentiment there was it was some type of victory because Democrats uh, took control of the Senate. But we see now that they don't control the House. So how did they see this merry-go-round playing out? Uh, do they want blacks to organize uh, locally? Should their focus always be the, these national elections? Uh, should they elicit grassroots support 
to some independent black parties. What was the overwhelming sentiment? I know it was some other, um, you mentioned uh, some, th- some of the things that the, uh, the Dr. Carr stated. But what was the overwhelming sentiment? I'm, I'm looking at names, and I don't want to be prejudgmental, uh, but, well, I'll, I'll let you tell it, because uh, I, I don't want to surmise what people were saying before I heard, before I hear you as a journalist uh, give your opinions on what was stated. Well, the overall sentiment was that people should organize at the state and congressional district level. So at the level that would help them elect people to Congress. So, 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 means, so wait a minute. So, you, so you're talking about they should organize at a local level. Yeah. Local, Go ahead. Go ahead. Local, yeah, local level in the context of congressional representation, because mm-hmm. the idea was to make sure that both chambers of Congress had favorable demographics for them. You know, now the House, not so much. That's not going to happen. But the Senate... You know, even with uh, the lady cinema uh, 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 turning independent, that sort of soured uh, the victory in Georgia, you know. So even with that, it gets a little bit harder for the Democrats in the Senate, but it's still a victory for them nonetheless. But to answer your question, people are thinking locally in the context of what congressional representation can they get in their districts. You know, can they make sure that their districts stay blue as possible, you know, wherever possible? But it's still nationally, you know, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it does. Um, Richard, because you probably got some more things on this line of questioning, but because uh, I wanted to kind of mix a few other things in there. But jump in there, Richard. I mean, I, you know, I wanted to, um, one, one thought, you know, Brother Collins, I wanted to get, let you know. Let's back up. You know, because as a journalist, I I take it you've been looking at the election. You know, bef- um, before this particular conference, looking at different areas. Um, I, w- I wanted to get your 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 view as far as how did you see this youthful voting? How did you see the voting play out from your lens in relationship to um, um, black folks' interests? Um, Well, there's a lot of voter mobilization. And when it comes to black folks, what the Democratic Party does is we got to understand that the Democratic Party is not a party just for black people. Mm. And we we understand that, but a lot of black people don't. (laughs) So they are not race first in that assessment. So a lot of the issues that came up, uh, we had women's reproductive rights for one, Uh, the economy. We had uh, Russia come into play. Uh, The courts came into play. So everything that was not necessarily related to people's day-to-day lives, but more so related to trying to stop the ascent of the red wave. That was what was on black people's mind as a collective when it came to voting. Mm. It was it was less so about the day-to-day. The day-to-day was still in there, but it was more so about fighting against the conservative wave that wanted to take more power 
and bring the country to what people may, con- may, may describe as more conservative. And that's what brought young black people out. The Democrats and what they call grassroots organizations, they had mass get-out-the-vote efforts in these battleground states, Michigan, Georgia, Arizona, North Carolina, right? Pennsylvania to a degree. They had them come out, register people to vote. They had people come out in droves to encourage young people, you know, and this is what was happening at that time because once again, the there was not necessarily a policy goal in mind. It was more so about stopping the red wave. Mm-hmm. And that's oftentimes what is on the mind of black voters. It's not it's not it's not about any policy issue. There's no end goal in mind. There's no utopian society per se that black voters want to see as a collective. It's more so about stopping what they believe to be an encroachment on their rights or whatever rights they have, right? Mm. So during the era of Trump, there was pushback against any kind of independent-minded thinking, right? So when Hillary lost, due to her own, you know, uh, 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 drawbacks, mind you, they blamed independent voters or people who sat out. They spent two years doing that, even though, you know, from my vantage point, the research shows that it was that wasn't even the case. Mm. Okay, that wasn't even the case. But they spent two to four years blaming independent voters. So by the time, so by the time that that 2020 comes around, we're coming out of George Floyd. Now, black people they are more emboldened as a collective to stop the bleeding or what they see as the bleeding. And we have well-moneyed, well-engineered, democratic-focused grassroots organizations organizing around that to galvanize people to vote, not for any particular interest, but to stop a conservative wave or what they de- or, or like like what they determine to be a conservative wave. And that is exactly what happened this time. The Republicans made it too easy. When you put people like Herschel Walker in the front, right? And, and it just they, they make it too easy. And another thing that that has stopped us, I would say, is the lack of organization within the nationalist community. I think that to a degree, <laughs> that is that 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 has impeded us because you know it's not about the money, it's about the organization, it's mm-hmm. about the it's about the support of institutions, and it's about uh, galvanizing and dispatching those institutions to conduct political education. So first to meet the needs of the people and then to educate them politically. The Democratic Party has people who are willing to do that or who are able to do that because they are backed by corporate interest. Mm-hmm. And even within that, you have people who identify as independents, but they're really Democrats. You might call them Democrats and dashiki sometimes. <clears throat> There's, there's a lot of that going on. And, and it's a new type of daishiki, too. But let me ask you this. <laughs> it's a, you, you mentioned this in the relationship to, and I, I want to get to the party question, I mean, the policy question in relationship to the to to the um, the event that occurred. But um, as you've seen it, did the Democratic Party put money on the ground 
for those um, for that grassroots organizing? Or was that grassroots organizing, as you define, um, really um, driven by the um, passion of not, you know, of what the Republicans did? I'm asking, was there, did you get any sense that the Republican Party put more money at the grassroots level for the turnout that it got? The Republican Party, the, not the Republican Party, excuse me, the Democratic Party, the Democratic Party, the Democratic Party, they put money behind it, but it's not they put money behind it into the grassroots organizations. So there, they are grassroots, mm-hmm. there, are there are grassroots organizations that don't identify as Democrat. They identify as voter mobilization. Mm hmm. Voter mobilization initiatives and the Democratic Party funds them. They they conduct campaigns through the black press. They conduct campaigns through millennial organizations. Mm. They conduct campaigns through organizations that are um, focused on different issues. And they have spokespeople. They 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 dispatch buses and they do voter mobilization drives all throughout the country. Yes, and they hit different states. That's so that's did. what they. So did they put more money in this midterm election into their hands in order to do that kind of mobilization than, say, um, during the presidential election two years prior, the Democratic Party? I can't speak to that. I I, I, I really cannot speak to that. I'm, I can't say if it was more or less. Mm-hmm. What I will say is that they understood the midterms to be just as important, if not more important, than uh, than the presidential election. Mm-hmm. Because right now it's about passing laws. It's about passing laws, and they saw what was happening in the courts over the last two years. So I don't have the data in front of me, mm-hmm. but I but I do know that they found the midterms to be very very important. And let it be known that Joe Biden had considerable considerably more success as a president during the midterms than President Obama did, because people actually turned out for the midterms and there's a lot of rhetoric where they try to divide black men and black women but black men and black women came out and voted pretty much at the same rate they try to put black women over black men you know in that regard and they try to blame black men for you know lack of voter turnout but it was on par this time Uh, let me let me richard let me let me throw this in and then i'll go right back to you so from the data that you've seen, uh, 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 Brother Collins, uh, this this more than any recent elections, the black vote again was the key factor. Would you agree? Definitely. Okay. I, I just want to. Okay. Uh, Richard, go ahead. Pick it up. No, no, I mean, that, that, that's a, and, and I got the impression, you know, before when Ellie was raising the question, which is in, in relationship to this midterm um review that went on um that they were celebrating that in one hand in the sense of you know um sister mallory talking about the youthful vote and whatever but this was um what what i wanted to see if if it came out i wasn't clear in the questioning did come out did they in that 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 review that midterm review did they come up with um, any consideration, I understand the focus on the congressional representation and pushing, you know, further for, you know, to getting the vote out from for, you know, more Congress representation. Was there policies, discussions that came up um, that were specific 
um, out of that review um, that 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 driven why it was necessary to have this this congressional representation um, within the Democratic Party in that midterm assessment? No specific policy discussions. It was more so about unity. Mm-hmm. So it was about unity and unity in the context of the diaspora wars that are playing out between, I'm not going to say their names, but that group that is reparations focused and uh, just focused on descendants of enslavement. Mm-hmm. They focused on that a bit. They focused on U.S. Africa relations. They focused on grassroots organizing and they focused on youth elder relations in terms of educating youth about the importance of voting. There wasn't really any focus on actual issues other than when it came to economics. That was one thing. But when it came to economics, it was more so a master class and how neoliberalism um, created the economic conditions that we're facing today. So they talked about corporatism. They talked about uh, presidents passing laws that, that that took factory jobs overseas, things of that nature. But there wasn't any focus on particular issues. If there was, I would say it was mostly on economics. But even so, it was more so about how to organize around that. Mm, mm. Which is interesting. I mean, I'm, I'm you know, this, but that, I'll, I'll leave that alone. And 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 I um I was just. Ellie, you, I mean, you can go go on because I'm, I'm this thing about lack of policy discussion in relationship to the vote. Like, you know, where does it, and you you open up, Elliot, um, making a point about us needing think tanks, right? So here and make an assessment of the midterm and the success of Black folks coming, in, especially young Black folks coming out, that there is no and no emphasis on. Well, what are the policies specifically that we want to be directing um, these congressional people to that we want these um, want black folks to in the Democratic Party? Because, you know, it, it just it, it's, it's too vague and too, too vague. But uh, I'll, I'll leave that alone because that ties into something else. Well, you know, Richard and, and, and uh, I, I want to. Uh, Brother Collins weigh in on this as a journalist that moves around to these different events. Uh, the the see, I, I, listen. I think all of this plays all together, and and it goes back to ethics and values, almost bordering on the conversation that that we had on the past uh, last week's program. Because when you have people that get to these. political seats and just have their uh, uh, what they want to do or their personal goals in mind then the people fall by the wayside Mm -hmm. you can't discuss these this town hall meeting that was hosted by uh, IBW uh, Institute of the Black World 21st Century this should be had by black elected officials in every city. Their congressmen, their councilmen, their aldermen, they should be having these discussions, think tanks, uh, 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 building, co- uh, uh, um, uh, uh, building black coalitions among black people, having political education classes. These things should be hosted 
by your political leaders, and they're not. They're not. They're being talked about in these forums. It wasn't a political leader here at this forum. Am I right, Brother Collins? I didn't lose you there, it was just, Oh, go ahead. No, no, you did it. It was just, I think you're right. And what I will say is that in addition to what you said, it's often after the fact that they have forms like this. It's not, it's not done in a way that is preemptive, that allows enough time for planning. And they should have it more often. Only representation I saw there was the NAACP and other organizations, but not necessarily, well, no, no elected officials from what I saw, none. Okay. See, and, and that's what I'm talking about. That, that, that's just my opinion. And that's why I was going to throw it back to you because I would think that these type of discussions should be spearheaded by your elected officials. They're your first line of defense. You elect them to be your first line of defense. So they should be coming up with these ideas, hearing what you have to say, and then implementing what you want. But they don't do that. I got a different take if you don't mind. Go ahead. That's what I I want you. Uh Uh-huh. Go ahead. I took issue with the event taking place uh, at the university, Howard University, and I took issue with the panelists being people who have prominence uh, in these organizations. Mm. Okay. I, I just, it's not grassroots enough in my opinion. And it does. And, 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 and the panelists don't reflect the sentiments of the electorate, the electorate, meaning the people who are really in going through the issues of the day. Any kind of town hall that would take place would need to include the people. It would need to be in a setting that would attract people, not turn them off or overwhelm them. And it would need to happen as frequently as possible to make sure that they have direct input in what's happening in in the affairs. Elected officials at this point, because they're beholden to us, we need to come to them with an agenda. And oftentimes, as black people, we're behind the eight ball because we have people such as these buffers, you know, who we depend on to do for us, but they're not really doing for us in the way that they should as far as organizing. You know, they, at the end of the day, they are beholden to certain people and certain principles. They are not in a position where they can organize us around being independent or acting politically independent. You know, they, they, they believe... The people who they're tied to do not benefit from black people being independent of mine. Mm. They are they are lockstep with the Democratic Party, the same Democratic Party that acts against our interests time and time again. So that event was not as grassroots as it should have been. And I think that what we want should be something that the nationalist community takes upon themselves to do in terms of holding community forums and conducting town halls and planning and creating action plans that we can unite around. But that, that was not what happened that night. It was far from it. You know, and, and I agree with you 10,000%, which, but let me, let me, you know, just for discussion purposes, because as you, as you say, um, because it seemed like um, Dr. Carr might've been alluding to it 
in, in what I've seen in the, the article um, in relationship to bringing up 72, because that to get to 72, what you described, uh, having those many conventions in the different areas before they went to Gary, that's what that's what happened. Right. That that that's the model. Right. That that, that in different communities, um, different people were having discussion and went by the and by the time you got got to that convention, um, you you had that cross section that you're talking about. Well, let me ask you this: um, that, that comes to my mind and again. It's just for the discussion purposes. As you moved around, um, have you heard anything in um, of what people think they should get out of Hakeem Jeffries as being, you know, now um, the, the Democratic? What is what it, the the speaker? Uh, for the, the for the Democratic Party in the House, has have you heard anybody make any reference to that? Hakeem Jeffries, from what I'm, from what people have told me, and from what I've seen, is a is aligned with Zionists, you know, in his district, and and and, and you know, Hakeem Jeffries has a reputation for stomping out any kind of radicals within his party. That's yes. why he rose up in party leadership. Yes. So, you know. I, I know I, I know I know I know his familial background, but that has nothing with what he has accomplished within the seats of power in Congress. There was a reason why he was he was able to become minority leader, you know. And even beyond that, the Republicans are not going to let him get any breathing room in there. You know, the time they should have been given that to him when the Democrats had majority power. Nancy Pelosi and all of them. Them being, you know, older statesmen or whatever, they held on to power for too long. But even with Hakeem Jeffries, he's too much of a moderate centrist or in some issue or in some respects a conservative to do anything of benefit for black people, especially black people with working class designations. Mm. It just it doesn't work that way. You know, he's too beholden to the powers that be. Otherwise, he would not be in there. And, and when you met, when you mentioned about the get, the mobilizing of the get out the vote, um, those systems are really just they're not. Um, and I'm asking for your opinion, not necessarily if if you don't know. And I appreciate it. You, you know, if you don't know, you don't have to answer. But their interest is really just about getting out the vote, not necessarily doing the political education and um, assisting in while they're getting out the vote or using that mechanism. Well, I guess what I'm asking, like now that the midterm is over, do you perceive that this um, group will continue to um, do the kind of grassroots organizing they did um, to get out the vote um, for the midterm election? I don't see it happening at all. Mm-hmm. It's always about the vote. It's never about empowering people to think for themselves or to be educated enough to participate in government. It's always about electing people and leaving them there until the next go around. Mm-hmm. That's what it's always about. And this case is not is 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 no different. Yeah, I I, I understand, and and I don't know what to say, well, Elliot, in know, relationship to this. <laughs> well, listen, I, I wanted uh, uh, Brother Sam, because, you know, I, I've, I've read his articles uh, in the Washington Inform. I wanted him to, and uh, you know, to give his opinion as mm-hmm. a journalist out there on what's going on, an objective opinion on what he sees. 
uh, and, 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 and even in relation to the, the, the age group, the black millennials or whatever, and to what he is observing, because this is a problem. We have talked about this on our program. This is a definite problem that has to be dealt with. We have to dealt with we have to deal with this this uh, subject of class, and I'll, I'll use the term struggle within the black community. These yeah. things have been created by Europeans, and blacks having a European mindset. It's all about me. I'm doing what's best for me. This is bullshit. It's, mm-hmm. it's killing our people, Richard. It really is. It's literally killing our people. Mm. And to that point, they have millennial leadership because right now the millennial generation is somewhere between late 20s to early 30s, mid 30s. They are the ones who are taking on the mantle of power uh, either congressionally or at the local level within the seats of government. Yeah. So they are the ones who have been molded over the years via internships, via office positions, working in campaigns. They are rising through the ranks to become, you know, oftentimes the first of their color or their gender to enter politics for a specific position or the youngest to take on the mantle. So, of course, they're going to stay on the party line. They're not going to stray from it because there's already an infrastructure that is in place for them to rise through the ranks. And oftentimes it is about influence, not necessarily power. Well, it's, it's the type of power that they believe is, is effective. That's what they want because they've seen their mentors, you know, who've given them the mantle. They've seen their mentors give them or execute that power, right? Mm-hmm. So these this is what's happening right now, and you see it happening all across you know, especially in politics yes. with millennials taking on a position and millennials, mind you, you know, they are relatively more radical than their predecessors, but not many of them within the political realm will step outside of the party line. If anything, they will create coalitions within the party, but they won't do what um, Senator Sinema did in becoming independent. They will not go that far because they still look at the democratic infrastructure as the win-win. The furthest they'll go, just like um, Congresswoman AOC and the other three council members, the furthest they'll go is creating their own coalition. And then even with that, when it comes to the most important votes, they'll vote within the party line. They won't stray far away. That's what we're looking at these days. Like I said before, Democrats and dashikis, people who claim independent thinking, but they're still beholden to the party because the party has has an infrastructure that was developed decades prior. And just like Dr. Carr said during that event, that infrastructure was developed out of the Gary Convention. They took what the what black people had and they integrated it into the democratic apparatus. Yes, and that is what we're dealing with to this day because black people. As a collective, I'm not going to say all of us, but many of us do not have the patience to build something for ourselves and to do something that will require us to be on our P's and Q's 24-7 in terms of building institutions, um, pouring money into institutions, molding leaders, 
creating a rites of passage within our community for leadership. Yes. Studying, studying politics as it applies to us and what that means in terms of feeding our people, creating opportunities for our people and molding them for leadership in terms of assessing how Eurocentric thinking has plagued our community and fighting against that. Yes. But we're dealing with too many things. As a matter of fact, too many of us are tied to the system, right? Through uh, public assistance. Okay. As well as the public school system, we are too tied in. We don't have institutions that are viable enough. Well, we do have institutions because we do have institutions, but they are not being supported. They are not being supported to the point where they can support a wide swath of African people. That is what we're dealing with right now. And, you know, the, um, the observation and, and critique you made of, of those who, are, who, are, who self-identify as nationalists or radicals, you know, what I'm what I'm finding when I'm going around um, is that the challenge and and some will fall within that. Even those those who fall in that millennial age group, um, it is is not that they're not doing something. What I find is that they don't have, and I shouldn't say you know what I feel and find in discussions. If there's no grand vision. There's not like, what are we trying to accomplish in this moment? We're doing something and they are doing something. They're, work, they're working, you know, they're, they're in those communities creating um, projects and programs. But compared to, say, the Gary, the Gary Convention, the driving was um, a national formation. It was a vision, a grand vision that brought them together that was bigger than whatever was do, being done locally, but it was the local work was to feed into that bigger thing. And the bigger thing was to be okay. even, and you know, um, to have an independent party. That okay. was the bigger thing, right? That, that was the vision, the strategy, which was, you know, um, we know at that Gary convention. And I would, I would differ in the language, not necessarily in what happened, because the split, them, sometimes I have to carry, you know, Elliot, I have to, I have to, I have to catch myself in, in my language, right? That split, them Negroes took it to the Democratic Party. The, mm. poli- the political operatives, because it wasn't the people who were in politics. Those who weren't in politics were saying, we need to create our own national convention. The ones who were being elected, who got elected, was the ones who said, um, they were already being elected by the people, and they went and said, said and nixed the nationalist community. And the nationalist community, I would say, and even um, I would say they never recovered to the next generation. And right now, um, they don't have a broader vision. And it's because of people working because of the struggle, you know, so I'm not making excuses, but what I see is, I is appreciate that, that though. Yeah, I appreciate they, that. You got to have a broader vision that you're working for and being able to articulate that. And so it seems like it's being silent there that they don't exist or they're being silent because the work that they're doing is just like everyday working people, their noses to the grind with projects. And I think everybody can come up, they can point to somebody who is, don't trust the system. They may not even vote or talk against the vote, 
but they're in, they're engaged in some activity within their community. But you can't. That's that's just that takes a lot of work. But it's got to be towards something, not working just to be working. I I would make that assessment. I agree. I, I agree, and I would add to that by giving a charge to us within the within the nationalist community in 2023 to continue doing what you just said we're doing, but do it together. Yes. You know, oftentimes we, we get siloed because, you know, and not to air out our dirty laundry, but people just want credit for everything. And that's not just nationalists. That's just everybody. I think that we can all win if we all come together under an umbrella. It doesn't have to be Oh, who did it? This organization, that organization. We all have common goals. If we if we unite around goals, then we can make a whole lot more happen in 2023. Not saying we haven't, because we are. We have we have institutions, we have political parties. But we can but we can unite at various levels, especially locally and statewide. Yes. <laughs> and I would push yes. that, I would push that timeline, objective timeline a little further out, but looking because I would say, where is where short term twenty thirty five? Where we want to be? Yeah. Because then the question is, in twenty twenty three, what is it we have to do to hit that in twenty thirty five? That's that means then we're moving towards something, and we have something to assess. But we have clearly defined if we're saying locally, we want to have certain policies, um, agenda items to clearly implement it. Um, by 2035, then what is it that we have to do in 2023 to build that? And that goes to the point that you were making. What, what if we have to cultivate our own politician? We have to cult- go create our own rites of passage process. Now in 23, if we have to be able to look at, as Elliot, as you always say, we look at our own individual um, districts and say we have to organize them to educate them that this is where we're going. Then they have something to enroll in. And then we have something to evaluate success by. But just working from one election to the next, which the Democratic Party, can they can do that because they can create boogeyman. They can create trumps. Exactly. And, and, and they're they always going to be there. Right, <laughs> right. <laughs> and, and and them and and that other that buffer group, as you said, I mean, we, you you mentioned it. I mean, that that's no joke. These guys are twenty and thirty years old. They're being cultivated within that process. Ten years from now, they'll be forty years old. What do you think they're going to be? They're and they still won't be able working in the best interest of the people that the communities they come out of. Uh, I'll, I'll stop. They're going to be the ones molding the next generation. They're doing it in the schools now. Yes. Right. They're yes. doing it in the sky. The, the, you, you, I'm going to these schools sometimes, you know, and there is a bit of nationalist thinking in there, but the other side, people are just repeating what elders are telling them, politically uneducated elders, you know, just about, and, and, and it's very, oftentimes it's very, um, piecemeal thinking like it's not it's not necessarily complex it's more like oh trump's a bad guy and we need to get biden in and you know Brittany griner this and da 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 it's more so repeating what they heard on the news it's yes. not, pe- people yes. aren't reading anymore people yes. aren't 
people don't have the context around the issues of the day or they're not understanding how, you know, this compares with what happened a few years ago and, and so forth and so on. They're just repeating what they heard. And then the institutions are right there waiting for them. Brother Collins, you just opened the door with my next question. And I want some of our listeners to understand this conversation is not about anybody being haters because this situation that our people are in, we've been in this situation since we've been here. And it's time that we start building ways to get out. Now, at that forum, you had a uh, a person that was representing the media on the panel, Roland Martin. What did he say in reference to uh, uh, the struggles of our people, making sure that the proper information always gets out to them? Because it's clear that to anybody that that reads independently that he's a Democratic operative. That's not a slur. That's not somebody hating. That's true. What did he say in reference to them? Because the media is an important part, whether you're talking about print media or electronic. In order for our people to really know about these issues, they have to be informed. What did he say in reference to his contribution or what he needs to do to better advance these situations? Uh, in terms of his contributions, he didn't really speak to that, but he did He did speak about media outlets parroting certain news and not checking their facts, and he brought up the whole HBCU funding situation uh, with the Biden administration, and he talked about that. My understanding was that HBCU funding – I'm not going to get totally into it. I'm not exactly sure what the issue was, but he said that there was some. He said that there was some inaccurate reporting around HBCU funding, and he said that a lot of the black outlets. And when I say black outlets, he means like the Grio, um, for one. They just they didn't dig deep into the numbers to verify the facts. They just repeated what another outlet said. And another example that he brought up, you know, and if you go on Twitter, he's often going toe-to-toe with the ADOS FBA crew about reparations and things like that. So, you know, in terms of reporting and fact-finding, he doesn't say it overtly, but Roland Martin, you know, as any other journalist of his ilk, they support Democrats, and they support any effort to get Democrats back in office. And as far as the facts, he's always about, you know, sticking to the numbers and being honest about what is happening. And, you know, it's a question of what does honest really mean? Because, you know, one thing that people of his ilk, once again, will always do when it comes to journalists and anybody else who talks about what the Democratic Party isn't doing, what they're going to do first is try to bring up facts about what Biden has done or what he's passed. And second, what they're going to try to do is, you know, ask them, as he's done in the past, ask them what other option do they have, you know? So to answer your question, they're always going to rely on facts, but even the facts themselves, there's got to be, trying to word this in the best way possible. Facts can be manipulated 
to meet the objective of somebody, right? So if I'm talking about what Biden has done, because one thing that they will try to tell you is that Biden cut child hunger in half or lowered it in the lowest over this amount of time. And people manipulate numbers like that all of the time to make, you know, you believe what it is that they're doing. Another thing that they want to talk about is the whole jobs report. Okay. Uh, uh, unemployment fell this, 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 that percent. And the numbers might say that at the very same time, that's only because people stopped filing for unemployment. Right. So yeah. as a, right. So, so like as a journalist, you can say anything to meet to meet your objective of supporting who it is that you want. And reporters like that, oftentimes, when they are beholden to the Democratic Party, they will do that and they won't be honest, totally honest about the criticisms that that those that those politicians receive. Because by the end of the day, their goal is to galvanize black people around preserving what it is they think that we gained during the civil rights era. Wow. We're going to take a brief break. And when we come back, uh, we'll transition into uh, uh, brother Sam PK Collins coverage of the U S African leader summit uh, as Collins on the line. You know what, before we do that, let me say something in reference to something that you mentioned, brother Collins in reference to Hakeem Jeffries, a question that Richard asked about Hakeem Jeffries. And we talked about him on this program a couple of weeks ago when he ascended to that seat to, you know, in January, he'll go, he'll be uh, sworn in or whatever to that seat. Um, and, you know, show people through published reports and some of his actions that he is definitely beholden to European Jews. We play clips of him, them asking him specific policies and questions that he's going to push and he gave specific answers and not only answers things that uh, him and the Democrats have accomplished in reference to narrowed down uh, uh, issues specific to a certain uh, group. Uh, they also asked him about what is he doing about uh, uh, black leaders, black uh, uh, athletes, and black entertainers that make anti-Semitic remarks. And he gave specifics on what he's doing in reference to that. Similar to what you said, Brother Collins. Now, I I want to play something before we break. Earlier this week, uh, and I want to thank Brother Maurice up there in New York for sending me uh, this clip. Earlier this week, they had a celebration for him in Harlem at the uh, wherever this, the House of Justice is. I, if it's not in Harlem, a New York uh, caller can clear me up. And they brought him there to, I guess, congratulate him for going to that seat. Now, when you have a politician come to the black community, it's supposed to be specific agendas that you're dealing with, similar to what you said that you attended at this IBW sponsored event. But again, here we go with something tantamount to 
what Obama did when he came to, I think it was the NAACP, when he insulted black people about kick off your slippers, get busy, and, and then start singing Al Green, and some of the people was all enthused about it. Instead of dealing with real issues that affect the masses of black people, not the less than 1% of black people that are doing well. I want you to hear, because the listening audience on Time for Awakening heard his dialogue with uh, leaders of the Jewish coalition. They heard him deal with specifics, and they, they heard his answers to specific questions. I want you to hear his dialogue uh, when Nan was re- uh, um, uh, recognizing him as far as uh, ascending to this seat and what he said, if I can find it here, I, I know I got it here, I and mean, what he said, it, you, you notice it's a stark difference in dialogue and what he's saying to white folks, whether they so-called Jews or anything else, and to people that are predominantly black or a black audience his interactions with them. I just want y'all to hear this and you tell me whether this makes any sense of what he's talking about in reference to what they're doing or what he's specifically doing for his constituents, which elected him. And then we'll go to a break. Let me play this for our listening audience. God is good. God is good. God is good. And all the time. What an honor and a blessing to be here at the National Action Network to be back home with all of you, with my distinguished colleagues in government, of course, the great Charlie Rangel. I stand on his shoulders. I'm so thankful to have learned and benefited from his wisdom, his life experiences, his insight. Of course, the current borough president, the former borough president. That's one of my closest friends in politics, y'all, Ruben Diaz, Jr. We served in the assembly together, the DA, all of the council members and members of the state legislature, and of course, the Reverend Dr. Al Sharpton, who, we know one of his early mentors, in addition to Dr. Bill Jones, was was James Brown. And it was said about James Brown that he was the hardest working man in show business. But I'm thankful that year after year, decade after decade, laboring in the vineyards of our community, it can be said without a doubt that Al Sharpton has been the hardest working man in the people's business. And we're so thankful for him. Al Sharpton a civil rights champion, a voice for the voiceless, a defender of the disenfranchised, a powerful, profound, prophetic, principled preacher and man of the people. We're so thankful for him. And on top of all of that, he's from my hometown. He's from my hometown. Now, 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 you know, you know, Brooklyn, I, I, I know I'm in Harlem, y'all, but, but he's from my hometown. And, and, you know, Brooklyn has given the world many things. I'm going to just give you a brief list. We've given the world many things. We, we gave the world Shirley Chisholm. We, we gave the world Jackie Robinson. 
We gave the world Junior's Cheesecake. We gave the world Coney Island. We gave the world Ruth Bader Ginsburg. We gave the world the Notorious B.I.G. And we gave the world Al Sharpton. And so we're thankful for you, the Reverend Dr. Al Sharpton. Now, it's been a big week. Washington, D.C. You know, the House of Representatives is a magical institution. It's the institution that the framers designed to be the closest to the people, to reflect the hopes, the dreams, the aspirations, the fears, the concerns, the anxieties, and the passions of the people. And I believe no one does it better than House Democrats because we reflect the people. We're of the people. We've had the life experiences of the people. You know, I'm, I'm going to let this play out, but uh, I just want to ask the listening audience, and Richard, Richard, wh- wh- what is this I'm listening to? Wh- wh- what is this? He, he trying he try to, well, <clears throat> that M party definitely supporting the Democratic Party. I mean, I mean, the, yeah, yeah, the but Democratic I'm talking about party, the, right? the like, overall, yeah. overall theme of what, what, what is this? Yeah. You, this, no. you didn't hear this when the, when the this American Jew, Jewish coalition was asking them specifics. He didn't get up there with all this old dumb stuff. If I want to watch entertainment, I'll turn on the BET Awards and watch uh, the Time and Mars Day. If I want to watch this type of stuff, what is this? This is a disgrace. This is what uh, uh, our guest tonight is talking about. This type of stuff is a disgrace. And some of our people have are accepting it. It's time for this type of stuff to stop. Let me continue this out before we go to a break. If I can find well, where I left off at. You know, 10 years ago when I, I got to the house, and I'm proud, I, I grew up in the Cornerstone Baptist Church. I went from the Cradle Roll Department to the United States Congress. <laughs> but God. And so I get to, I get to, I'm thankful for Reverend Lacey, who preached the word on today. I get to the house on that first day, and I see John Lewis and Charlie Rangel, Maxine Waters, so many legendary members of the house, Jim Clyburn. It's that first day I'm so excited. I got to be honest, y'all, I was I was tempted to go to the front of the chamber, stand in the well in front of the microphone, and simply say, holla. <laughs> I didn't do it. I didn't do it. I didn't do it. But that's, that's what I was tempted to do 10 years ago. But then I thought to myself, I said, if I do that... I might just hear the voice of Shirley Chisholm. Y'all know I represent many parts of the district that she used to represent. I figured if I did that, I might just hear the voice of Shirley Chisholm calling down from heaven. Saying, young man, we sent you to Congress to stand up. Don't go down there and act up. And for the last five terms... Inspired by those around me, those upon whose shoulders I stand, inspired by 
the work that Reverend Sharpton and all of you do at NAM. I've been working hard to stand up. Stand up for the communities that I'm privileged to represent. Stand up for social justice and economic justice, for criminal justice reform. Stand up for working families, middle class folks, those who aspire to be part of the middle class, young people, seniors, immigrants, veterans. Stand up for the poor, the sick, the afflicted, the least, the lost, and the left behind. At our best, that's what House Democrats do. We stand up for the people. That's not a, that's not a slogan, y'all. It's a way of life. It's what we believe in. And we've got the track record to prove it. We've got the track record to prove that we fight and deliver for the people. We passed the American Rescue Plan, saved the economy, put shots in arms, money in pockets, kids back in school. But we didn't stop there. Then we passed the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act which will create millions of good-paying jobs right here in New York and all across the land. Fix our crumbling bridges, roads, tunnels, our airports, our water and sewer system, our mass transportation system. Ensure that there's clean water in every single community. No more Jackson, Mississippi. An incredible string of legislative success on your behalf. And, and on top of all of that, Katanji Brown-Jackson is seated on the United States Supreme Court. The D in Democrat stands for deliver. Let's be clear. And so we've got a track record of success to demonstrate that we put people over politics. We believe in a country that provides for the poor, works for working families, makes sense for the middle class, and stands up for senior citizens. We believe in a country that will innovate in the inner city, strengthen suburban communities, help out the heartland, and revitalize rural America. We believe in a country with liberty and justice for all, equal protection under the law, free and fair elections, government of the people, by the people, and for the people. These are values that we want to bring to life as we fight to make life better for all of you, for everyday Americans in every corner of the land. And so I'm thankful for your support, for your love, for your prayers as we enter this new chapter on your behalf, on behalf of our great country, where I'm going to continue every day, every week, every month, every year that I have the opportunity to serve you to fight for lower costs, fight for better paying jobs, fight for safer communities, defend our democracy, fight for freedom, protect the public interest, ensure economic opportunity in every corner of America, and fight to pass the John Robert Lewis Freedom to Vote Act so we can end the era of voter suppression here in America once and for all. And lastly, with your support, in two years, we're going to take back control of the United States House of Representatives. God bless you. God bless Dan. God bless the United States of America. Yeah, so when all of this stuff don't get done in a couple of years, he'll blame, he'll say we got to take back the Congress in order to do it. 
See, the, the, the Senate them flipped over. Now, now they don't have control of the Senate. No, excuse me. I did the Senate is back in Democratic hands. Now they done lost control of the Congress. So two years from now, that'll be their excuse again. The black people got to start getting on this merry-go-round because it ain't going nowhere. You're going around and around in the same spot. He mentioned about three times in that thing about he's fighting for middle America. He's fighting for every corner of the United States. I thought he was supposed to be fighting for the 8th District up there in New York. And according to stats, the 8th District is 48% black with over 372,000 black people in that district. More, uh, More than anybody else, any other racial demographic, overwhelmingly black. And 20, according to stats here, over 20% of them live in poverty. Well, 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 what the hell? What, the, what, is, what are we listening to? I remember when this guy was running for president, and he brought that, uh, uh, Kamala Harris here. And she went up there to Ogons Avenue, a couple of blocks away from my business, and went to put on some Timberlands and, and, pant, and, and, and jeans, skinny jeans. Oh, I'm, I'm a part of the people. I ain't seen her with no Timberlands and skinny jeans on since. We got to stop falling for these shows these people put on, singing Al Green, walking around with hot sauce in your pocketbook, wearing Timberlands and and skinny jeans, getting up here in Harlem talking crazy about what they've done for black people. We going to keep accepting this? Brother Collins, before I go to a break, give me your opinion on what you heard as, as a journalist. I mean, you know, any requirement for membership in the Democratic Party or just any major American political party requires that you align yourself and believe in the principles of the American Constitution. They literally put their hand on the Bible and they pledge on it, you know, to get in the office. So (laughs) nothing that Hakeem Jeffries said in that clip surprised me. What I did here was a confirmation of what I said earlier about young leadership being molded by the elder generation because he established a lineage through the Reverend Al Sharpton. And he also mentioned Charlie Rangel as well as Shirley Chisholm, you know, people who he looked up to and some of whom even prepared him for his role. So he didn't speak exclusively about black people. He spoke about the United States, and he spoke about the Democratic Party. Mm-hmm. So we know where he is at. We know what his goal was, and we see that manifesting in his ascent in Democratic leadership. He is holding the mantle, and he is doing what he has set out to do as a dominant member of the Democratic Party. So one last point I want to make is that the Democratic Party is centrist, and it has become even more centrist over the last few years, or few decades, as a matter of fact. So even within the Democratic Party, there's been infighting about what its future is, about who it represents, and Hakeem Jeffries has been on the front lines of a movement to make sure that it stays centrist and it stays um, in the interest of business people. So... That's just a continuation of what we're seeing in this clip. He is pretty much telling us what it is that he's in this for. And that is what every election has always come down to when it comes to black people. Black people are the deciding factor in any election. And Democrats 
are not going to tell you about the issues or how they're going to solve them or how they've solved them. They're just going to tell you what what's in the balance as far as um, this party's standing in the House and in the Senate. That's what he talked about. He didn't talk about anything specific. He just talked about the American political system, the Democratic standing, and he even talked about um, Kachanji, uh, uh, Jackson Brown, you know, so just symbolic victories that black people once again, you know, attach themselves to, but nothing to substance. <laughs> We're going to take a brief break, and when we come back, we'll continue the conversation with Washington, D.C. journalist, author, and educated brother Sam P.K. Collins. You can join the conversation, too, by dialing 215-490-9832. That's 215-490-9832. Time for an awakening. We'll be right back. With host Brother Elliot and Brother Richard on Time for an Awakening Media, part of the Black Talk Radio Network. For podcasting or live program scheduling, hit them up at Time for an Awakening at gmail.com. All Insurance Incorporated, an African-American owned and operated insurance agency and business for over 20 years. Located at 231 Southeastern Road in Glenside, PA, with other offices in Germantown and West Philadelphia. Call now for commercial insurance quotes, homeowners insurance quotes, automobile insurance quotes, notary and tax services. Representing over 15 major A-rated insurance companies. Offering a discount on all notary services when you call in for a free quote. Call this number, 21 21- 215-885-2444. That number is 215-885-2444. 215-885-2444. All Insurance Incorporated. Your roof becomes unruly, called Dooley. Dooley Brothers, specializing in shingle, rubber roofs, gutters, downspouts, and vinyl sidings. Call for your free estimate today, 215-224-3882. That's 215-224-3882. Dooley Brothers Roofing, the roofing experts you can trust. That number again, 215-224-3882. 215-224-3882. Before your roof becomes unruly, call Dooley. RG Electrical Inspections provides electrical inspections for realtors, licensed electricians, and homeowners. Licensed and insured underwriter, serving Philadelphia and surrounding area. Call today, 484-268-9837. Escape the digital plantation. Abibitumi.com, Abibitumi.tv, Abibitumi.tv.com, Abibitumi.store are here for you. You are ready to be free of non-African social media. Don't run from danger, run to safety. Abibitumi.com is here for you. You are ready to be free of digital plantations to control your own products. 
abibitumi.store is here for you. A-B-I-B-I-T-U-M-I, Black Power, A-B-I-B-I-T-U-M-I. The only word you need to know to join your global Commit to You Black family, to join your interconnected Commit to You Black communities. Escape the digital plantation now. Abibitumi.com, Abibitumi.tv, Abibitumi.tv.com. Abibitumi.store. We are here for you. Escape the digital plantation. I am an African. The death of my brother is also my death. Let me put this question to you again. Because many foolish black middle classes and many foolish people who are eating well think that they can sit in America and watch this country destroy the African continents and watch this country destroy African Caribbeans and watch this country destroy Africans in Central and South America and think that these same people who destroy Africans abroad will not be the same people who will destroy them in America. There are fools in this, this country who try to claim that they are not Africans, who claim that they do not see color, as if they're not seeing color makes any difference in the world. Simply because you don't see color doesn't mean somebody does not see you as color. And that's the issue. And you think then that you can sit in this country while this same nation and these same people that you sleep with and marry and love and so forth can go out and destroy African people and not think those people do not see you as African. Even though you choose not to see yourself as African, you better think again. You're out of your minds and you're headed for death. You must understand that. Hide behind it. I am an American. Ladies and gentlemen, the death and destruction of black people will follow those kind of abstractions. Probably the next five or ten years will indicate whether or not the black man can survive. Our struggle for survival is a very real struggle. And the white man has prepared genocide for black people. Unemployment, the black man is no longer necessary. Unemployment is going to be a way of life for black people. We are going to face increasing dangers and problems as the days pass. And we're totally unequipped as black people to deal with them. We're a part of a slave culture. We have no preparation. We have no black institutions capable of dealing with white racist institutions designed to serve only white people. We must deal with the problem that confronts black people by building black institutions, by understanding that only a separate disposition is a viable position for black people. Any organization or any leader in America who today advocates integration is a foe and an enemy of black people and their survival in the coming years.
this crooked game of power politics here in America, the Negro, namely the race problem, integration, civil rights issue, are all nothing but tools used by the whites who call themselves liberals against another group of whites who call themselves conservatives, either to get into power or to retain power. Among whites here in America, the political teams are no longer divided into Democrats and Republicans. The whites who are now struggling for control of the American political throne are divided into liberal and conservative camps. The white liberals from both parties cross party lines to work together toward the same goal. And white conservatives from both parties do likewise. The white liberal differs from the white conservative only in one way. The liberal is more deceitful, more hypocritical than the conservative. Both want power, but the white liberal is the one who has perfected the art of posing as the Negro's friend and benefactor. And by winning the friendship and support of the Negro, the white liberal is able to use the Negro as a pawn or a weapon in this political football game that is constantly raging between the white liberals and the white conservatives. The American Negro is nothing but a political football. listening to Time for an Awakening, Time for an Awakening, with host Brother Elliot and Brother Richard on Time for an Awakening Media, part of the Black Talk Radio Network. For podcasting or live program scheduling, hit them up at timeforanawakening at gmail.com. Time for an Awakening is 8.37 here in this Sunday edition of Time for an Awakening. Our guest this evening in conversation, Washington, D.C. journalist, author, and educator, Brother Sam P.K. Collins is with us. Uh, we've been discussing the Institute, Institute of the Black World 21st Century's post-midterm town hall focused in on uh, effective black coalition building. We're also going to uh, transition into the U.S. Uh, Africa Leaders Summit that was in Washington, D.C., uh, part of the discussion, and you can join this discussion too in conversation by dialing 215-490-9832. That's 215-490-9832. Uh, Brother Sam, before we transition into uh, your attendance at the uh, U.S. Africa Leaders Summit in D.C., let me go to a call or two and see if they want to ask a question on uh, what we talked about previously. Let's go to 267. 267. Yes, how are you, Brother Elliot and Brother Richard and your guests? You know, I'm into electoral politics, but you educate me a lot on Hakeem Jeffrey. Wow. I mean, you're doing your pick and shovel work. You know, I'm in your classroom writing down notes. You and Richard at the blackboard putting up information. <laughs> I'm just sitting back, man. I'm just observing because you never know what goes on other states and other cities because we are connected whether you realize it or not, and what goes on in another state or city can I easily go on here. And ain't too much difference in New York and Philadelphia with the corruption and the weakness and the lack of building economically and politically and educationally and jobs. So um, I'm sitting back, man, in your classroom, and uh, with my ears wide, my eyes looking, and my mouth open. 
<laughs> Talk to you later. Thanks for your contribution, brother. Yeah. Brother Sam, the um, uh, t- tell our audience about the uh, the summit. Uh, you mentioned to me in private conversation that they uh, they get black journalists a hard way to go. <laughs> uh, t- t- tell us a little bit about your experiences, what you heard, uh, and uh, because you wrote several articles in reference to this. So just give us your perspectives on what went on. No doubt. So the U.S. Africa Leaders Summit took place for three days uh, from Tuesday to Thursday. Uh, we had 50 African leaders. They met with President Biden and members of the Biden administration at the Washington Convention Center in Washington, D.C. And this was an effort by the Biden administration to re-engage the African continent at a time when the U.S., Russia, and China are competing for a space in Africa and for control of African resources. So there was a lot of money on the table during these three days. We're talking billions of dollars, lots of resources, and lots of MOUs that were being signed that ceded some control of African natural resources to the United States and opened up Africa to a global market, more so than has been the case before. In terms of your question about my experience as a journalist, first of all, the the credentialing process, had it not been for the fact that I write for a publication that has been around for 50 years or so and has rapport with the community, I'm not entirely sure if I would have been able to get in. And even with getting in, I was not able to access more of the important um, events. One being the actual gathering of all the heads of state and Anthony Blinken, who is the U.S. Secretary of State. They showed us a live stream of the opening portion, but they closed off the rest of it to media. And so for a couple hours or so, you know, there was not much that we saw other than what they showed to us. And it became a question of what is it that, African reporters are going to go back home and tell their people because on parts of the African continent, oftentimes it's a bit harder to be a journalist, you know, um, arguably. I would say it's hard to be a journalist here as well, but on the African continent, you know, uh, they do clamp down a little bit more on journalism that strays away from the narrative that the government wants out there. But there were layers to participation as journalists during the summit. And they gave the information that they wanted to give and anything that they wanted to tell us, they told us during press conferences. And there wasn't even enough time to ask questions. If you did ask questions, you had to catch people in the hallway. You know, I I did that um, in the case of uh, a brother who... Uh, was the head of the Africa Import-Export Exchange. So we spoke for about 10, 15 minutes 
about an MOU that he signed that opened up uh, African uh, uh, nations to creditors or to or to um, that allowed manufacturers in Africa to be open to a market, pretty much. So, so just in closing, I want to close. What I want to say is that this is similar to what I experienced as a White House press pool reporter. To even get in the door, you got to fill out an application. And once you get in the door, they only give you but so much. It's a very controlled environment because by the end of the day, they want to produce a narrative. That's all that they want to do is not necessarily about getting the information out. It's about what kind of information that they're getting out. And they're only going to tell you as much as they want. I had an opportunity to interview a Biden administration official. And when I mentioned China and Russia, he didn't want to talk too much about it. He tried straying away from that. It was more so about reshaping America's uh, relationship. And he tried saying that these billions of dollars were grants, were grant funds. These are not these, these are these are not things to be repaid. They are more so grants. But you got to look beyond that. This is all quid pro quo in the sense that in accepting funds from the United States, Africa is now more deeply engaged in the proxy war in which they have given their allegiance to the United States at a time when they are still in war with Russia and China, sort of like the Cold War of yesteryear. I'll stop there. Brother Collins, before I pass the mic to Brother Richard, um, tell us, you said there was 54, now was it 54, uh, excuse me, not 54, because it's 54 countries in the African Union. Uh, you said it was 50 representatives there, so four countries weren't represented, or it was just 50 different individuals? How, how did that work? Or do you know the countries that didn't attend? It was 49 countries and the African Union. Okay. Four countries that did not attend. Pull it up. I know Mali was one. Was Zimbabwe there? <clears throat> Zimbabwe was in attendance. Okay. Okay. Well, okay. Even even with, even with the sanctions, yes. I don't think Burkina Faso was either. <clears throat> Mali wasn't. Give me one second. Mali, Sudan, Burkina Faso, and Guinea. Mm-hmm. Okay. The ones who are going against France um, in relationship to um, pushing France out of their area. Exactly. <laughs> so they wasn't allowed to attend the, the Brethren's Conference here in the United States. Uh, mm. <laughs> uh, another thing before I pass it to Brother Richard. And see, that this is what, you know, that I, I we constantly mention on this program. The African continent is the ancestral home of Africans that live in the diaspora, here in America in particular. No matter what we say, well, I'm from South Carolina, I'm from Virginia. Okay, that's not where you're from. That might be where you migrated from to come to Philadelphia or to New York or whatever. But that's the ancestral home of our people. So you have a summit being conducted here. And it's not the number one story circulated in black media. 
and especially electronic media and in print too, about what's going on there, what is being discussed. Because if there, if there was some type of Asian summit, you can best believe me that these cities and even down to these Asian stores that, that proliferate black communities, all of these people would be aware of what's going on, aware of what's being discussed, because it would affect them. If they can get goods and merchandise, uh, whatever the value of the dollar is in exchange, all of these things would have to be disseminated to Asian businessmen and Asian descent people if they choose to find out about it here in the United States or other places. And I'm just using them as, as an example. But we got this summit going on between Africa and the United States, and it's not even talked about in black media. It's like, uh, oh, oh, you know, it, this is the problem. This is the problem, people. This is a problem. And, and uh, Brother Sam, was there any elected officials present? I, I, Bilkin is a, is a cabinet member, or, or he's appointed. But was any elected to, uh, black elected officials present? Uh, or you, that you're aware of? Yeah, I mean, you don't it, it, just just off the cuff. Are you aware of any that were in is in, in attendance? Ilhan Omar, uh, but not to my knowledge beyond that. Uh, Vice President Kamala Harris did speak on the first day. She spoke before uh, African youth at the National uh, Museum of African American History and Culture. But other than that, if there were elected officials, they were more so at the um, events that were happening around the around the summit. But the media was not uh, afforded to find out what was going on or what was being discussed. Okay, wow. Richard, select select media, yes, yeah, select media. Select media. Okay, <laughs> Richard. <clears throat> Now, because um, you know, in having discussion around this, let me let me see. And you and you did, you know, you did clarify. It was really like not a. It was a bubble around this, so you wasn't able to get more than what they projected to us. I'm wondering, um, um, other than the grants, did um, did you hear of whether there was any long range plans created between United States and those African countries? In, in terms of long-range plans, it was around infrastructure, um, health, climate change, mm-hmm. food security. It was more so about bringing in funds from the United States to help them develop in those areas. And it was about bringing in private corporations to help in those causes and it was about providing the supplies and the machinery that would allow African countries to take their natural resources and process them into um, fit into into goods that can get exported. So whereas the job of turning natural goods into finished goods would happen off the continent, it was going it, it's, it's going to happen on the continent now. And they say that it's more of a way to build jobs, but it's also a question of how many jobs would get built, whether the funds will get used, you know, who, who would facilitate the funds. But the funds are going toward 
the construction of infrastructure and toward um, using toward turning natural resources into finished goods and pretty much exposing the African continent to a new market or to new markets, uh, 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 you know, creating that supply chain between the United States and the African continent. So when it comes to certain goods like um, batteries for electric cars, Mm. so the DRC and Zambia, they signed an MOU with the United States that would allow them to take the cobalt and to process the cobalt right there on the continent to bring those electric car batteries over to the United States. And it's the same thing when it comes to Nigeria and uh, Cote d'Ivoire. Um, a lot of the countries, different, different goods. Wow. Now, now, the, the, the other thought, you know, um, and what I'm hearing, you know, is um, that African American. There's been a. Well, let me ask it as a question. Did you get to see whether there was a? I'm gonna call it a trade uh, African American trade delegation that was a part of this um, this gathering of people specifically um, um, looking to be a part of this, this exchange between the United States and, and Africa? Not necessarily. Um, Was there any lobbyists? I mean, did you, I mean, you're hearing batteries and, and, you know, these, even if they're going there, the companies that are going to use these batteries, I'm assuming primarily are white companies. Were there any other, um, could you tell, were there any other, um, um, white companies that were a part of this gathering in relationship to um, even probably getting closer than maybe the journalists were getting. So you had companies there and you also had um, for the most part it was companies and governments but these companies were mostly white ran for the most part. I would say, I would say oftentimes the only African people that we saw in the space, if they weren't from the continent, then they were from the United States, of course, and they worked within the Biden administration or they worked. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. But as far as business, we saw some business people in there as well and foreign affairs people. But as far as industry uh, and, and we did see some people within the medical field because you had the medical technology, cybersecurity folks in there as well, different industries. So I'm not going to, you know, paint a broad brush and say that we weren't represented in the room, but mm-hmm. we we were there. But mm-hmm. there was mainly a focus on private industry. So it was it was about bringing in corporations to uh, develop African nations. And there were some African people at the forefront of that. I'm not going to disregard that at all. And it would be interesting to know even with that, because, you know, um, one thing that it was told to me and a, a brother was supposed to send over a, a document that was um, that was um, developed by African-Americans in relationship to this here um, conference that was um, being held and, and what they what they put in. He didn't send it. But he also mentioned um, Dana Banks uh, um, Bank, who is from Philadelphia, who is a, um, also a part of this was a diplomat and part of the State Department and her involvement in trying to create an African-American, African um, um, trade re- uh, relationship. Now, 
Um, the, I, I have to say two things, um, Elliot, and, and, and to you, Brother Collins, um, that I'm, you know, three things, you know, and I'll be sure. One, I'm not pleased with this. Um, you know, maybe because I don't trust American foreign policy. And as you say, the security is because this is more about American security um, more than about uh, um, America helping Africa or African-Americans who, you know, you would think that that would be in the middle would be the natural ties, but you also brought up about the corporations. Two, because I think that, you know, there'll be more African-Americans within the State Department. Um, But, you know, they're just like we talked about earlier with the local politics, their grooming is not necessarily to support, um, you know, the development of of African pipeline, uh, you know, a supply chain from, you know, between the continent and African Africans um, in our neighborhoods or, or in our, in our, in our rural areas, as far as economic development, right. Um, in, in that sense. Um, and these black folks that are there, they're part of the state department or the ones, and you mentioned the corporations that are there. Um, there either be some people who are working in these corporations. And, and, and I guess the third thing, the reason why I'm not, um, I'm, I'm concerned about this is the way, um, which you have spoken to brother Collins before, how pan-African or pan-Africanism gets conflated with being a part of the American foreign policy. Cause you know, um, you know, even I think people were telling me about Biden making some overture, um, to the Africans in relationship to, was that slavery that he had, um, did apology on or something to that effect? I, I, I don't know if you, you were aware of, you know, did Biden say something in relationship to slavery? Yeah, I think or, he did. Yeah. Um, apologizing to that. So these things don't seem like, the same kind of positioning that African-Americans would, who are pan-Africanists, or as you said, nationalists would be pushing, but the way they're, um, the way it would be characterized. So I just wanted to put that out there of, of my particular dissatisfaction. Um, but I'm also concerned, how do black people in America benefit from this trade relationship? Um, which I don't think it will be because just like black people in the democratic party domestically, they're supporting the party and here they're supporting American foreign policy, um, more than supporting, um, black people and looking for benefit. I just wanted to throw that out there. Do you have any, um, thoughts to that? If I made any sense to you, um, brother Collins, you made a lot of sense and pan-Africanism definitely got co-opted during that summit. There's a lot of language, and I'm pretty sure that the powers that be, they are seeing a resurgence or a mainstream popularization of pan-African sentiments. Yes, and yes. They're, and, and they're pretty much institutionalizing that within the Biden administration. Mm-hmm. So Biden announced something to that effect earlier this week during the summit. Uh, it was uh, It's an initiative with his, within his administration to... Uh, strengthen diasporic relationships between the United States and Africa. And, you know, you have people within the Biden administration um, who are working in the diaspora, of course. And as a matter of fact, there's a young brother from Sierra Leone 
Uh, he spoke on the first day of the summit at the youth summit, uh, a youth leader summit. Uh, he was actually a Peace Corps volunteer, and he mm. worked in the Obama administration. Oh. And even though, you know, he did speak candidly about how debt crippled Sierra Leone and how the relationship with the U.S. needs to be different, at the very same time, it's very concerning because this goes to a point we made earlier in the discussion about how young people are put in positions in these institutions and they are used to advance ideals to bring others into the fold. So we're talking about Pan-Africanism. We're talking about a new Africa, Africans on the rise, Africa having, you know, a considerable amount of young people, you know, out of the whole global population of young people. And young people like this brother are being put on the forefront to advance the cause that by the end of the day, does not necessarily benefit us as Africans because there was no discussion about why Africans could not have this summit among themselves, you know, in closed quarters. Why is it that as a continent, we, you know, they needed to come to the United States to engage with an outside actor? You know, there was no discussion around it. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead, Brother Colin. One more point I want to bring up is that we still there's still a military a heavy US military presence on the African continent. Mm. And the United States is seeing that militarization is not going to help solve their case anymore. Because while the US was going hard with Africa through proxy wars and through the setup of um military bases through AFRICOM, China had a bit of a softer approach. So I got to reiterate that the United States is copying China and is copying Russia to an extent. And by the end of the day, Africa loses because Africa is being used as a, uh, as, as a monopoly board by the end of the day. And Africans are not being willful participants in all of this. You know, to a degree, they're not. And, you know, I don't know to what degree they could have refused, but I'm pretty sure that they could have, you know, at the very same time, who's to know what was happening in the background. But I know that, you know, just wrapping up this point, a lot of money was thrown on the table this past week. In total, they're talking about $55 billion over the next three years. $55 billion of taxpayer dollars over the next three years to build up infrastructure. Now, whether that's going to happen or not is yet to be seen because oftentimes with things like this, there's oftentimes a lot of talking and a lot of promises. But the but it's incumbent upon journalists like myself to follow up and to see if those promises were kept. Uh, another thing to note is that the summit was thrown together pretty last minute. There wasn't a lot of thought that went into it, you know, otherwise we would have seen a little bit more engagement from people. And that, you know, that goes to a point made earlier about how the media wasn't as excited about it, uh, about how had it been an Asian summit or something like that, there would have been a bit more discussion. But, you know, this was pretty much thrown together last minute. <laughs> Let's go. 
Okay, so, can I, before you go, can I just mention two articles, two paragraphs uh, out of two articles that show the comparison between United States and China? Um, and, and, and this, this, and I think for understanding context sake, if I can, um, and, and this one, one article comes, um, what is the FOCAC? Three historic stages in the China-Africa relationship. Um, the Forum on China-African Cooperation, FOCAC, was established in 2000 as a uni-multilateral uni partnership platform between China and 53 countries, African states. All African states except Iswastini, was main, which maintained diplomatic relations with Taiwan. Many of the partnership platforms Africa has today with a single external actor, FOCA remains the most strategically intertwined and far-reaching in its depth, scope, and level of cooperation. In theory, the form creates a form of multilateralism in which all countries are equal partners, but the comparative weight of China's state capacity effectively dictates um, 53 pairs of bilateral relationships. I'm only bringing that up <clears throat> that they started this in 2000. I don't know if America has created that relationship over, and this is, we're talking about 20, 12 years, right? Um, last year, I want to, you know, go to the, to this last year, um, the, um, in a global times article in May, it says West, West still harbors colonial attitude towards Africa, former South African diplomat. But, um, and um, let me see if I can find this. In 2021, Chinese um, President Xi Jinping announced the China-Africa Cooperative Vision 2035, which not only incorporates the China vision of 2035, but also corresponds to the AU Agenda 2063 and the development of strategies of African countries. What does this mean for China and Africa to strengthen further cooperation and build a stronger China-African community with shared future? The Chinese government released its first comprehensive and constructive white paper on China and Africa cooperation titled China and Africa in a New Era, a partnership of equals on 26 November 2021. This was followed by a productive eight ministerial conference of the Forum on China-Africa Cooperation held in Senegal, capital of Dakar, on November 29th and 30th, 2021. It is a credit to the Chinese and African leaders that an outcome of the FOCA, CAC meeting in Dakar and with a comprehensive Measurable, measurable, practical, and and forward-looking outlooks was generally viewed as a success. Not only has the FOCAC withstood the test of time in an uncertain international landscape, but has in fact increasingly become a model of international cooperation. When you made the point about um, the way China operates versus the way United States, right? They've been working on this um, cooperation. So, and United States bringing these um, leaders together 
and, and this being planned over maybe let's give them two years. It raises the question, who's playing here, who over here, right? And they said, or what countries are truly aligned with America and what countries are truly aligned with China or is, Af- uh, is African countries playing both? I just wanted to bring that up because I think that that's important for us to see. But more important, where do we sit at, and, you know, in relationship to the benefit or and of our historical understanding, Elliot, as you said, that we being recognizing ourselves as African, but that it has to benefit us or it only benefits other people. And and that's that's a that's a problem. I agree. Let's go to seven one eight seven one eight. Greetings, brother. This is Brother Maurice. How y'all doing tonight? How are you? Good, good. I did comment on something, uh, a couple of different things. First of all, uh, Brother Richard, uh, AGOA was enacted in 2000 uh, underneath Clinton. So the United States has been over there. That's the African Growth and Opportunity Act that we talked about several times in the show. And the thing that I found, I, I didn't watch the whole conference. And thank thank you, uh, Brother brother uh, Collins, for the work that you do Um I think it's important because the the conference is up on YouTube, and most people don't know that. And I did have a chance to listen to Gregory Meeks, who's been uh, touting uh, his support for Africa after he became uh, in charge of the House Foreign Relations Committee and then passing all these restrictive laws to punish those African nations that don't want to condemn um, Russia. Um he was. He kept talking about this whole idea of community, but all I saw when I watched uh, some of this conference was a bunch of capitalists talking to a bunch of capitalists, and it didn't matter if they had a black face or not. All they were interested in was business, and not the business of black people, but the business of business. And yeah, General Electric is over there doing some stuff. Cisco Systems is over there doing some stuff. They talked about the environment. I'm sitting up here wondering to myself when they had a panel talk about the environment, what in the hell is Idris Elba sitting up here on this panel for? And then some other woman that was an actress. When we have a brother at Delaware State University, Professor Ezra Arrowhorn, who's been bringing African delegations over here and talking about empowering and, and developing a triangle of trade between our countries. And he's already done the hard work. He wasn't there. All those people and stuff were not there, and you can and and it, it just frustrates me when we keep talking about the same um, nonsense over and over again, where people are, uh, it's about making money and they're not about uh, making connections or empowering black people. <laughs> he when, when Gregory Meeks talked, he had me laughing because he said something that was was he he, he talked about uh, the youth of um, Africa. Because you know that it's the it's the the youngest uh, population in the world in terms of um, continent in terms of the, the continent like their average age is like around thirty, and so they're looking at the continent for the potential to um, move their businesses and stuff to those continents to use African labor to to um, boost their economies and stuff because they're already stealing all the resources. They just some other country just signed another long term deal or whatever. I can't remember the name of the country. I saw it in the news, and I just 
one of the, I, you know, it, it makes me sometimes have tears in my eyes when I look at this because I, I can't understand why um, we can't get we can't get that foot off of our damn necks, and it and and, and it's it's frustrating. I, I I just wanted to say something else about the local politics thing because this is something that's going on in New York that you don't know about within. You know, uh, uh, Jeffries is my congressman, right? He, in in this particular district, is 55 percent black. Okay, in 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 my particular area where uh, where I live at, um, the majority of the, all of the homeless shelters exist in my area in the city of New York, right? We have the most we the, the whole city, and they're trying to open up a new homeless shelter in our area. This is talking about political representation, right? Again, you I don't have to even tell you, Elliot Charles Barron is fighting it. I already have to. I don't need to tell you. He's already called it out. He called out the racial uh, 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 demographics of wealth versus those neighborhoods that are poor, and how they're trying to populate um, all of these homeless shelters and and um, halfway houses in this particular neighborhood. We got about six homeless shelters in this neighborhood already, and they're trying to. And Eric Adams is trying to open up a new one in our area, and we're in, we're in a battle. This is this is a Community Board Five, we're in a battle fighting against them. But then again, this is—we're talking about black politicians, right? This is a black politician. He already know about what's going on in his neighborhood. But because we don't demonstrate political power or unity, like Brother Collins was talking about, we can't win. Those white people in in, in Brooklyn—we talk about Brooklyn now. Ninety percent of, um, for example, there's areas that ninety percent white and Asian, no homeless shelters in their areas at all. We got six in East New York, Brooklyn. So again, I mean, when, we, when we're dealing with the, the, this politic thing, this is a it's a it's a it's a trick bag. And it's like I t- like I tried to tell these young brothers and sisters, I said, let me tell you something, man. Do you think you was the only person that had piss and vigor and was motivated to change the world and go out in there and fight? Some of our our um, frustration with this system is based off experience of promises not kept. I keep hammering away on my show asking the question. You saw you saw uh, gays and lesb- lesbians at the White House celebrating the Marriage Act. I didn't see any black farmers there. <laughs> we don't have nothing to celebrate there. Black farmers, you know, where's the, you know, can we, do we have to go and get Willie Nelson to have a concert? Where are the black entertainers that have a concert to save some of these damn black farmers from, from going into bankruptcy? I am frustrated out of my mind. Ellie, you know we've been fighting for years. See, I'm getting upset now, and it's frustrating me. So I'm not going to stay any long. But I, Brother brother Collins, you know, it, again, you know, I'm grateful that Brother Ellie and Brother Richard and, you know, we on Black Men Screaming are trying to keep the, the get the information out to people. But I'm telling you, even when I started getting into some of these these topics, they take my show off the air or they won't show that particular episode. They preempted and stuff. So, I mean, as long as we don't control anything, we're not able to do anything. And that whole thing with Roland Martin and all of them, yeah, where was Tyreek Nasheed? Because Roland Martin and Tyreek Nasheed have been going back and forth. And Roland Martin said, well, if you don't go out and vote, you ain't going to get nothing. Ask a black, a black person that you know in your neighborhood, what did you get? Don't talk about poverty. So, yeah, you got another dollar and 12 cents into um that they, they was able to approve for for um, EBT, right, for EBT card. But guess what? The poor, it, like when they when they always want to show 
And we talked about this so much. We talked about this. Well, they will always want to show the poorest neighborhoods in the city of New York. Do you know what? You know what area has the highest uh, percentage of people on welfare? It's upstate New York, and it's a it's a all Hasidic Jewish community. That's fact. I pointed that out. You know, people didn't like that. Don't, so when you talk about all that whole damn community, it's like ninety eight percent of them are on welfare. So the next time you want to go show something, just show that community, damn it. But they won't because we, because we don't control anything. We don't control the media and stuff. So, I mean, this. let me tell you something. You can watch – I watched some of the stuff, uh, the, the, the um, United States or whatever, and that it, it was a joke to me. They had a lot of young people that was on there, but they, like uh, Brother Collins said, they're compromised. They're not. They're not there for us. They're there because they like the. Uh, they like the the limelight. They like the position, but they don't love their people, because you can't sit up there and talk about, um, like for example, I just I'm gonna say this and I'm gonna get up. I'm sorry, brothers. I'm going on. Like I've been uh, like I'm still angry about uh, Ethiopia and the wars is going on over there in Eritrea and stuff, and I'm talking about them bombing over there, and I'm talking about the famine that's going on over there, and I'm talking about the drought that's going on over there. And and I tell people on my show, I'm not going to say a damn thing about the Ukraine until you say something about what's going on in Eastern Africa when there's been a drought going on in that area for years, and y'all don't give a damn about it because you want to you wanna, uh, talk about this terrorists over there. What developed them? Why did those people turn against this country? There's a reason why. And then the last, the last thing I want to say is we want to talk about environmental disaster. Let's talk about off the coast of, of Ethiopia and stuff, and where they've been dumping radioactive waste off the coast, off that coast for years. And the United States, it know they've been doing it. Japan been doing it. Europe has been doing it and stuff. And they're not stopping. And then they're going to talk about some the pirates out there because you destroy the fishing industry in that particular area. This is facts. This is they had a report in the United Nations. This is not something I'm making up. Of course, you can't find a report online anymore because they took it down. So, so I'm I'm done, brothers. I'm you know I'm frustrated. You know I just had to say it. That I, I I watched some of the the, the um, U.S. conference and it just seemed to me. Just to be a bunch of people that's looking to make money and they don't want to do anything to help our brothers and sisters on the continent or in the Caribbean or in America. There's no um, reaching out to try to make connections and stuff. It's only those people that are politically connected who are going to make the, going to be benefiting from it, and it won't be any of us. Uh, that's the last thing I have to say, brothers. I'm, I'm going to get off in this listen. Brother, thanks for your contribution. Take it out. <clears throat> uh, Brother Collins, uh, Richard, let me let me before we go to our next call, let me read this, uh, Richard, because uh, you made a statement um, when you said you don't think that they're um, doing this in the interest of black people. I think that you mentioned that that the United States right. is right. not doing this. Well, I want to prove you wrong, Richard. I, I, I'm gonna prove you wrong because I'm reading the. Uh, and you can pull it down on the government site. It's the 21st Century U.S.-Africa Partnership Agreement, and it's six, it's six uh, points there, bullet points, where they, they're going to uh, work on. And I'm going to read the fifth bullet point that will prove you wrong, Richard. The fifth, okay. the fifth bullet point says, Engage America's African Diaspora. 
Our diaspora is the source of strength. It includes African-Americans, descendants of formerly enslaved Africans, and nearly 2 million African immigrants who maintain close, familiar, social, and economic connections to the continent. The African immigrant population is among the most educated and prosperous communities in the United States. The AU has included the global African diaspora, people of native African origin, living outside the continent as the sixth region. We will elevate our diaspora engagement to strengthen the dialogue between U.S. officials and the diaspora in the United States. We will also support the U.N.'s permanent forum for people of African descent. Through these efforts, we will seek to better highlight U.S. policies, combat misinformation, and foster partnerships, and deepen mutual understanding. So wait a minute, Richard. It says we will, we will elevate our diaspora engagement to strengthen the dialogue between U.S. officials and the diaspora in the United States. So... I guess you'll be waiting in the listening audience. Call Meeks. Call uh, 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 Jeffries. Uh, call the guy here in Philadelphia. Uh, call your elected officials because they're supposed to be starting these dialogues. According to this U.S. document with the fifth bullet point, we will elevate our diaspora engagement to strengthen dialogue between U.S. officials and the diasporas in the United States. And according to the Europeans who authored this document, it says here, because some black folks said that they're not from Africa, just like the the, uh, Amos Wilson clip I play. They don't Mm. acknowledge that they're Africans. Well, let me help you, because the Europeans, uh, they, they have determined who you are, and I'll read it again. It says, our African diaspora is a source of strength. It includes African Americans, descendants of formerly enslaved Africans, and nearly 2 million African immigrants who maintain close family, social, and economic connections to the continent. So you're included in that. Mm. According to Europeans, you don't think, some of, some of our people don't think so. They think they're Americans. Well, he's telling you who you are. And they also said that they're going to start up this dialogue. So, again, this country is either liars or they're truthful. And I'm putting my money on them being liars. And I'm not this country because it, this land don't lie. It's the Europeans that is in control of the land and the government. Brother Collins, uh, any comment before I go to this next call? Yes, actually. <laughs> go, ahead. go ahead, sir. I think now is an opportunity for... African people in this country, especially, to uh, get more lock and step with what's happening on the continent. You know, I think that we should be having our own summits. Yes. And it's, it, you know, it's 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 funny because uh, I came across uh, pictures from a summit that that a local uh, bookstore hosted around the same time of the U.S. Africa Leader Summit, and I thought it was very interesting that they did that. I think that we need to be doing more of that ourselves. And that speaks to a point that I made earlier, you know, only because, you know, and once again, 
a lot of the things that we denied, and y'all brought this up earlier, the U.S. government already knows. So they know that we are part of a diaspora. They know that we have been disconnected from our homeland. They see us attempting to get back into it. So they want it, so they want to build that apparatus for it to happen. They don't want yeah. it to happen outside of their purview. Yes. You know. Exactly. <clears throat> oh my goodness. Go yes. ahead. I'm sorry, Brother Collins. Go ahead. So I think that it's essential that we do it. And I think that, you know, and I always say this, we gotta we gotta establish an understanding of government that applies to us. You know, everything that happened this week that I attended is not to our benefit, you know, now in the off chance, this money does reach the continent and they create jobs. Okay. That's cool, I guess. But at the very same time, there's no self-determination in the sense that African people have control of their resources. It's still controlled by neoliberal governments. It's still controlled by people who are supported by the U S government, you know, uh, who are who 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 are put in power because they help fulfill the wishes of the U.S. government? We got to develop our own understanding of government, and we got to take steps to collaborate locally, nationally, and internationally, where we're hosting summits of our own, and we are always keeping tabs on what our counterparts are doing around the world and helping each other out. I think that we lost sight of that because you know um, people have. I mean, now we have African leaders, quote unquote, you know, people have given their will to the government instead of continuing to fight for what is their their natural right. And not saying that's for everybody, but we do need to do more in terms of forming our own governments and acting as and 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 acting as the people that we are not allowing the government to just step in and do what we need to do for ourselves, if that makes sense. Yes. Definitely. Let's go to two one five two one five. Yeah, good good evening, brother Elliot. How you doing? How are you, sir? I'm doing fine. Hey, good evening, brother Richard. Good evening, brother Collins. How you doing, my brother? Living, learning, and laughing, having a good time. Thanks for asking. Are you welcome? Our praise be to Allah. You know, it's funny, uh, brother Collins and, and brother Rich and brother Elliot, on Africa and the importance of Africa. The current issue. Well, one of the current issues of the Final Call newspaper and the Muslim Journal both talk about black people in America connecting with African homeland as a way of saving our people. That's why your your, your topic is so timely, which you and Brother Rich and Brother Elliot discussing, Brother Collins, is so timely because both papers around the same time that both issues came out pointed the importance of black people in America connecting with our brothers and sisters on the continent and stuff and how that's a, definitely a way to save our people, you know, globally. So I, I think the, your, your topic is definitely timely. And, you know, I share Brother Maurice's frustration who came on, who preceded me and stuff, because he echoed many of my sentiments as I listened to Brother Maurice talk, because, uh, you know, and, and, you know, they say ignorance, Brother Collins, is a dangerous thing, because when you talk about, when Brother Maurice talked about uh, Ethiopia and the Somali so-called Somali pirates and all that stuff, like for example, he called the these brothers uh, pirates and he and, and stuff. But he like, but and see, like here in Philadelphia, you got talk show hosts in Philadelphia that will go along with the nonsense. For example, you remember when Obama was president, he had the audacity 
when the brothers was over there, because like Brother Maurice said, they destroyed their waterways, their fishing, they were anywhere in life that that Ethiopian and Somalian brothers and sisters can can have the the impure acquired the light to go there, pollute the waters. They they almost forced them into a life of crime of hijacking ships because the Europeans over there doing their devilment like Europeans do. Well, Obama had the nerve to send snipers over. You remember the incident where he shot and killed the one Somalian brother, and they brought the other one back to America and threw him in jail and gave him life without parole and. None of them handkerchief head Negroes on Congress. I didn't hear shocked, and none of them said what injustice is. What his brothers in America, in American South, right now, in the prison crime, and his only crime is trying to feed itself. You know what I mean? He's serving life in prison. He's, I think he was at the time 18 or 19, 17, 18, whatever it was. He's serving life in prison and stuff like that. He's called a terrorist, a pirate, and a bomber. Like I said, the guy who was got 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 killed by the sniper, and he was and they brought him in alive. He's like he's didn't get, get killed, and he's serving time in prison, and his only crime was trying to survive and stuff like that, and that cowardly-ass Obama assassinated his, 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 the guy that was with him and stuff. I mean, it's just, uh, see, this is something that tries to just continue to go like with that, that, when you tie to that Democrat Party and black people stay so blind, they can't see the forest before the tree, and that's why I was so glad, Brother Elliot and, and, and Richard and Brother Kyle, when Brother Timothy called, who was the first caller. And, he went, and, and I like what Timothy said. He said, you educate me about Hakeem Jeffries. See, there again, and see, you got the average black person you talk to that's, that's into politics, they look at Hakeem Jeffries as a, as a great man. They look at him as some simple hope for black people, not realizing he's tied up with white corporate interests. He's not looking out for black people. He's going to do just what the white slave masters in that Democrat Party tell that nigga to do. And he and, and he and he's clearly has proven, Brother Collins, that he's a tool of Israel. He's going to be a tool for these racist Zionists who don't give a damn about black people and stuff like that. But, they, but, but you have the average black person, they look at Hakeem Jeffries, Al Sharpton, all these Negroes, uh, 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 Raphael Warnock. They look at these Negroes as some kind of vanguard for black. These people are not fighting for black people. They 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 playing lip service, but the whole thing is tied up for white corporate interests and white Jewish Zionist interests. That's who they looking out for. They tools of Israel and that Zionism over there. I mean, it's a shame I smoke so many of our people are so politically not educated to think that these people are for us. And and and, and what Brother Maurice pointed out just now for the Hasidic Jews. See, that's another thing. See, again, how the white media covers it up. Not only was these Hasidic Jews on, 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 on welfare, they got they was accused of welfare fraud. Now, they always talk about black people. You know, the the the, the, the image in white America, Brother Collins, as you well know, is some sister, some black sister or Puerto sister that got two or three kids and she's getting welfare and, and she's driving down in her check to get a cat in, in a Cadillac or whatever, getting her welfare check or whatever. But they don't talk about these white Hasidic Jews that was committed and welfare fraud. It was many of them was on welfare and didn't even have to be on welfare because they was in a financial position. They was just beating the system. They was getting all kind of legal welfare camps, EBT cards, but it was and it was forced. At least what they say say what they, they can tell us anything. But they say these white city Jews was forced to pay the money back and everything like that, which I have my doubts about. You know, because I don't trust believe nothing that they say. They ain't paying pay the damn thing back. But the, my point is that they was getting this, these, these welfare benefits illegally, and again. No, no, nothing from the white media. Of course, we don't expect them. And they, nothing, nothing from the black media. The black media ain't say nothing, anything about them white, white Hasidic Jews scamming the system like that. You know what I mean? So, I mean, we see clearly how stuff is being done right in front of our face, and nothing is being said, and he, and it, and it's 
sorry, black media. Sometimes I think they they report news like the white media and stuff. So that's why I be wondering what sometimes do we have. It was for time from the waking and some other media. I don't even think we would even have a black media because this, this so-called black mainstream media. I might as well be watching Fox News or CNN because they report news the same way the white man does. So you know, I don't for no 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 necessarily no uh you know no no joy out of watching them. The Roland Martins of the world and it's clownish buffoonish stuff. I mean these Negroes are disgraced and stuff, man. You know, but it's again this, this is why we have to get politically educated and like you said, brother Collins have to have our own summits and stuff where where where, where we can have grassroots black folks in there that that that, that really gonna the fight for our interests and stuff as opposed to these corporate lackeys it's like the Sharptons, the Hakeem Jeffries, the Dwight Evans who from Philadelphia, represent Philadelphia and Pennsylvania, the Raphael Warnocks, the Eric Adams and stuff. These Negroes not for our people, man. So we got to, you know, start making sure we get in place people that really care about our people in these political offices that are going to fight for black people, not going to be apologists for white racism and white Zionism and stuff. We got to get people that really care and it's going to fight for our people. And, and, and to that happens, we just, we on the treadmill, our feet moving, but we ain't going to no damn where. And that's why I, I share Brother Maurice's frustration because he, he echoed many of my sentiments about these Negroes, man. Then like he said, why, why are they not having something for the black farmers? Like, that's your lifeline, man. You better feed your people. Why 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 ain't Jay-Z and, 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 and 25, 50 cents, or 25 cents, if you want to call them that, why 25 cents and, and Jay-Z and Ice Cube and all these people, they, they love it, they, they want to keep it real. They should be keeping it real about but supporting their black farmers, like Brother Marie said, to keep them from going under. They they run around here with oh, after some devil like Roger Goodell, the NFL owner, and stuff like that. Some old, old racist white man that won't give a damn about black people. Robert Kraft and these people, you should be fighting out for the look out for your black farmers. That, that can that can that's a lifeline of feeding your people not only in America but around the world. Their priorities are so skewed, man. I mean, just, you know they can they can put the eyes closed with this. He got Meek Mills, Brother Collins, and you got uh, uh Jay Z. They gonna put their millions together by some old rich white bigot like Robert Kraft who paid for the owner of the New England page 14 they're going to put their money together to buy him a damn a Bentley or whatever, a Rolls Royce and this man filthy rich, but you'll get your damn black farmers going under and you, but you're going to put your millions together to support this devil, I mean you got to be crazy man but anyway, I, I, that's all I'm going to say I won't monopolize it and I'll just listen to the rest of the show Elliot thanks for your contribution and you're welcome brother Collins uh, listen I know I kept you over time no, nah, it's no problem, and I, you know, brother Donald, if you got, if you got, because we got one call that's been waiting. Uh, if you got maybe two minutes, you want you want to take this last one? Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. Okay, let's go to six four six six four six. Yes, um, good evening, um, brother Donald. Um, I was listening to you earlier, and you had mentioned something about Hakeem Jeffries and his community being 20% poor or, or undeserved or, you know, something of that you tell me about? Wait a minute. Your voice is uh, like gargled, uh, your connection. Say that again. No, but I, what I was saying was that he was speaking earlier in the Hakeem Jeffries and his community oh, being 20% um, poor, um, in regards to that? Uh, no, no. I read a, uh, a, a published report that the 20% of that 8th district lives in below the poverty line or in poverty. Nah, that, that, that number is not right. That number is not right. It's, it's higher than that. 
Okay. And then, and really, my my question to you, Brother Collins, is this: I know that you're a journalist. Have you ever thought about putting forward an honest analysis in regards to black politicians and how these black politicians get into office and they spend years and years in office and their community never improves? I mean, if, if, if the truth be told, you can look at Maxine Waters, What's going on with her 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 immunity? Only gentrifying the population of black people has basically diminished. You can look at um, Claiborne, his community, and um, poverty, the lack of education, ownership. I mean, just all of these so-called top-level black politicians. None of their communities are flourishing. And really, in all honesty, have black communities. But for some reason, nobody has never put them to task for it or call them out. But, you know, we always want to talk about the Jew. Who gives a damn about the Jew? I don't even understand why black people even think about Jews when, in all honesty, the reality is there is no politician in the Senate or in Congress that does not support the Jew. There may be one senator in the whole upper echelon in government that is not a staunch supporter of Israel. And I think that senator is... um, Rand Paul. And I mean, to even show you how deep it is, even one who they bitch and moan about all the time, I think Omar East, whatever her name is, the sister from Minnesota, she even supports the Jew. But the difference is her community gets services and her community has not declined since she's been in office because you know what the truth of the matter is? She has a community. But I, I would hope you would really think about what I'm saying to you and do a real honest piece. I know it may cause you a lot of problems in the end because a lot of people will probably go after you. But in all honesty, if you think about what I just said to you, there is no high echelon member of Congress or the Senate that is black, that community is flourishing. And that's what needs to be called out. Because here it is, you just had a situation two years ago where this Negro, James Clyburn, was able to have the so-called type of influence that he had to be able to put forward Biden. That's like the same thing to me back in the 80s and the 90s when Bill Clinton was able to ascend to the level that he did after what he did to Sister Soldier because of the Negro so-called black leader, Sharpton, and all the rest of them saying to Sister Soldier, leave them alone. We'll deal with it. And look what we got in return.
But it, it, it's just an idea I'm throwing out there to you, brother. Because I'm not a journalist. All I can do is just say what I said to you. But someone with your skill, and it seems like your honesty, really need to write a piece and expose that truth. Because I'm to be honest. You know, your voice is going out, but uh, yeah, he he heard you. Go, say that. All right. Oh, okay. Now, now you cleared up. Good. Say that again. No, what, what I'm saying is, where, where do we where do we define the real black community at? I mean, it's just not one in this country that if you're going to be honest, is vibrant, that has so-called black leadership. And, I mean, but we praise people like uh, Maxine Waters, Clyde Bourne, Hakeem Jeffries, where, to be honest, I live in New York. I know for a fact that Hakeem Jeffries doesn't have a flourishing black community. And I'll tell him that in his face. When I see him, I'll tell him that in his face. You know? And I know that, that to be honest with you, I'm going to be very honest with you. That whole thing that you had with Al Sharpton and Dr. Corner, our man, and that boy dog and pony show, bro. That's all it is. It was nothing more than a dog and pony show with middle class Negroes who believed in the system sitting up there clapping for the ruthless bastards. And I know that for a fact. I know that for a fact. You know, that's how we talk about Charlie Wangle. Let me tell you something. I've known Charlie Wangle for over 40 years. And, and, and I live in his community. He left our community. Invaded basically the white folks, and he didn't even have decency to set it up to where he was being replaced by one of his own. He was replaced by a black man Dominican. Listen, hey, so I'll leave it at that. Thanks for your contribution, bro. Put me on mute, please. But I really would like to hear your guests respond to what I'm saying. All right. Yeah. Thanks for your contribution. Brother Kyle. Thank you. Yes, sir. Uh, black leaders that you're looking for is you. And when I say you, I'm not speaking about the caller specifically, but I'm speaking about each and every one of us. We have something inside of us that comes from the most high that we have to spend our whole lives developing in order to fulfill our destiny as individuals. So we come into this earth and we got to figure out what it is that we are good at and how it is that we're going to contribute to society. But in order to fulfill that, we need to be incubated with good family and a good environment. So the nation, and speaking about nationalism, the first nation is the family. Black people as a collective are too enamored with celebrities, celebrities being uh, rappers and athletes and more recently politicians in the age of Obama, especially when through social media, celebrities and politicians go hand in hand and they might even have morphed into one whole thing right there. 
So we got to get out of this mindset that these people are God and we are peons because we are not peons. We have something within us that can embolden us to be the leaders that we should be for our communities. That is where we need to be as African people because the people who we herald, the people who we hold in high regard are our class enemies in the sense that they couldn't care less about us. They're not going to step in for us. They're not going to save us. They're not going to contribute to our causes unless they get something out of it. And it's even, it's exacerbated in this day and age, at least during the civil rights movement, uh, Ozzie Davis, Ruby D, Harry Belafonte and others, uh, you know, Sidney Portier, at least they contributed to the cause financially and with resources. This day and age, they don't even jump in unless there's a commercial involved or they get a tax write-off <laughs> or they, you know, it's, it's, it's just what it is. So we gotta, we gotta practice being our own leaders. And I think that's the major lesson out of it all. How, how is it that we as a community can start forging familiar bonds and taking the steps needed to be the best that we can be, not only for ourselves, but for our significant others and our families, so that when it comes time to that, we can unite on various levels. But it starts with the individual, and it starts with understanding what we are capable of once we put our mind to it, our mind and our soul. Well said, well said. Brother Collins, before you leave, because I, I know I kept you over time and I want to apologize. Before you leave us, just tell everybody how they can uh, not only read the column, but uh, get the book and, uh, you know, just uh, follow you on social media, things of that nature. It's no problem at all. Please look me up. Sam P.K. Collins, S-A-M-P-K Collins, C-O-L-L-I-N-S. I'm published in the Washington Informer. I got a book of my own called Babylon Be Still. How a Journalist Educator Adopted an African-Centered Worldview. You can find it at Sankofa Video Books and Cafe in Washington, D.C. You can also check it out online at alleyesondc.com. The link to purchase the book is there. You know, a very good book. I highly recommend it for anybody who has sensed any frustration with current events and our situation as African people. (laughs) Brother Collins. I want to thank you for being with us as always and always look to uh, have you on the program periodically to give you insights on things going on. Anytime. I appreciate y'all. Thank you so much, Brother Elliot. Thank you, Brother Richard, and many thanks to your callers. Talk you to take you. care, brother. Talk to you soon. <laughs> All right. Talk soon. Peace and blessings. Peace. We're going to take a brief break, and when we come back, we'll start winding things down. Brother Richard on Time for an Awakening Media, part of the Black Talk Radio Network for podcasting or live program scheduling. Hit them up 
at timeforanawakening at gmail.com. All Insurance Incorporated, an African-American owned and operated insurance agency in business for over 20 years, located at 231 Southeastern Road in Glenside, PA, with other offices in Germantown and West Philadelphia. Call now for commercial insurance quotes, homeowners insurance quotes, automobile insurance quotes, notary and tax services, representing over 15 major A-rated insurance companies, offering a discount on all notary services when you call in for a free quote. Call this number, 21 21- 215-885-2444. That number is 215-885-2444. 215-885-2444. All Insurance Incorporated. RG Electrical Inspections provides electrical inspections for realtors, licensed electricians, and homeowners. Licensed and insured underwriter serving Philadelphia and surrounding area. Call today, 484-268-9837. the digital plantation. Abibitumi.com, abibitumi.tv, abibitumitv.com, abibitumi.store are here for you. You are ready to be free of non-African social media. Don't run from danger, run to safety. Abibitumi.com is here for you. You are ready to be free of digital plantations to control your own products. Abibitumi.store is here for you. A-B-I-B-I-T-U-M-I. Black Power. A-B-I-B-I-T-U-M-I. The only word you need to know to join your global you black family, to join your interconnected you black communities, Escape the digital plantation now. Abibitumi.com, abibitumi.tv, abibitumitv.com, abibitumi.store. We are here for you. Escape the digital plantation. A new era, a new phase of the struggle where we have moved from a struggle for decency, which characterized our struggle for 10 or 12 years, to a struggle for genuine equality. And this is where we're getting the resistance because there was never any intention uh, to go this far. People were reacting to Bull Connor and to Jim Clark rather than acting in good faith for the realization of genuine equality. Do you think white people in this country, and I'm talking about non-segregationists, people devoid or thinking they're devoid of racism, do you have any idea of what they want the Negro to be in America? I think the vast majority of white Americans uh, will go but so far. It's a kind of installment plan for equality. And uh, they are always looking for an excuse uh, to go but so far. And know that this problem needs to be solved and we can't keep relegating it to generation after generation because a few of us got a little money, a few of us got positions, a few of us have wealth while the masses of our people are going steadily down. No one man can rise above the condition of his people. See, brother said responsibility. Is it, is it that we should let them take responsibility to do for us, or should we pool 
the knowledge that's at the table, the power that's in our community, the wealth that's in our community to change the harsh reality of black life in America. We have to do the job of fulfilling the black agenda. Thank you. Whites are expert game players in their contests to maintain absolute power. One of the time-honored gimmicks is to point to individual blacks who've achieved recognition. But look at Raph Bunch. Think about Lena Horne or Marian Anderson. Look at Jackie Robinson. They made it as one of those who has made it. I would like to be thought of as an inspiration to our young, but I don't want them lied to. Name them for me. The examples of blacks who made it. For virtually everyone you name, I can give you a sordid piece of factual information on how they have been mistreated, humiliated. Not being able to fight back is a form of severe punishment. I come here tonight and plead with you. Believe in yourself and believe that you're somebody. As I said to the group last night, nobody else can do this for us. No document can do this for us. No Lincolnian Emancipation Proclamation can do this for us. No Kennesonian or Johnsonian Civil Rights Bill can do this for us. If the Negro is to be free, he must move down into the inner resources of his own soul and sign with a pen and ink of self-assertive manhood his own emancipation proclamation. Let anybody take your manhood. Time for an awakening, the proud part of the Black Talk Radio Network, the number one independent black digital and podcasting platform. Welcome back to Time for an Awakening. I want to thank our guests that spent some time with us this evening. Washington, D.C. journalist, author, and educator, Brother Sam P.K. Collins. Interesting conversation we had uh, with Brother Sam uh, on several different topics. And um, as a journalist and a brother from what they, you know, termed the millennial, black millennials, you heard the perspective of him, Richard. And it's, uh, (laughs) this is what, listen, Richard, this is why you see a lot of this going on. And he alluded to it when he was talking Mm -hmm. about them putting different black faces uh, up in front of different initiatives, blacks of a certain age. You, you know what I'm saying, Richard? Oh, yeah. This, yeah. this is a strategy. It's, it, they're not just doing this because they know that what's been going on on the grassroots and, and level, they know it's unorganized, but they know a lot of these conversations that's been going on. So just like he stated, they want to get out in front of these issues. And it, listen, it was refreshing to hear him say that because we never talk. That's always been my perspective. Right. That they want to get out in front of these issues when you see these things happening. We never talked about that. But when I heard him say that, it was so, you know, you you know what I'm saying? When you hear somebody with that type of kindred spirit say the same things that you had been saying, 
it it, it kind of confirms that you ain't alone. There you go. So, there you, go. Uh, you know, we, we, we just got to, uh, I remember the, the, the uh, Hall of Fame journalist, uh, uh, talk show host here in Philadelphia, Mary Mason, used to mm-hmm. always say back in the day about keeping a scorecard. Mm-hmm. We got to keep a scorecard with these people that stop doing all this cheerleading. You heard the brother say about some of our people with this cheerleading stuff with, with these uh, black celebrities, these uh, politicians and all that have became celebrities. Right. You got to watch what they're doing. What they're doing and what they're saying is two different things. There you go. Richard, before we go, you've seen that article that I sent you. Uh, and it, it, the only reason I looked that up, because when we played the clip with Charles Barron a couple of weeks ago, when he was in front of the city council up there in New York, and was talking about all that money that they're generating and that they have in a surplus, and none of the money is going to the black community. Right. And when he asked about the, uh, the media, uh, uh, you're building affordable homes, uh, affordable to who? And, and when he asked about the salary ranges, remember that they didn't know. And he said, right. I want some, I want some answers. You remember when he said that Richard? Yep. Now I, I sent you that thing here because they showed the other day here in Philadelphia. And I know you don't watch television. They had a groundbreaking down in uh, your, your Point Breeze section, which is your area yeah. of, of affordable homes. And they showed black elected officials down there, Kenyatta Johnson, Daryl Clark. And Daryl Clark is in North Philly, so I don't know what he was doing down there. But he was, you know, they had the shovels. You know how they pick up a scoop of dirt and throw it with the shovel. Right. And I'm more than sure that Evans was down there. They have several black elected officials down there and talked about the homes that are being built. Now, they was doing a playground over down at 24th and right off Passion. And whenever they're doing these playgrounds over, the neighborhood is being gentrified because they don't want their children playing in the program, those playgrounds that we grew up playing in with glass all over. Uh, none of the uh, recreation stuff is working. The fields look like somebody threw a bomb in it, grass uncut, full of dog crap, you know. So they, they're redoing all of these recreation centers. And I could see in the background when they were being interviewed, the new homes that was being built. So they're doing this groundbreaking the other day and throwing shovels of dirt. So I go online to do look a little follow-up article. Let, let me read this, Richard. Because now before I read this, the and this is according to, to st- statistics, uh, they did a published report on this continuing racial and ethnic income gap. Uh, and it was published in June, 2022, almost six months ago now. And it says the national average for black Americans as of April the 12th, uh, 2022 was $43,000. That's nationally $43,000 a year for a family. Mm-hmm. And the national average for the average white family was $103,000 a year. Now, in New York, it's slightly higher, according to these statistics. But in Philadelphia, it's lower than 43000 The average black family don't make anywhere near that in Philadelphia. And plus, mm-hmm. they got a 20%, 27% poverty rate, which is higher than any other city in this country on average. 
Now, you've got areas and neighborhoods in different cities that are more, but they're talking about the average of a, uh, any city over a million in population. Philadelphia has the highest poverty rate. Mm-hmm. So I'm looking at these homes, and I'm not just reading them. I'm going to read these two paragraphs, Richard. And this is the homes being built in Philadelphia. Keep in mind, people, that wherever you are, whether you're in New York, Chicago, Baltimore, wherever this gentrifying is going on, in any of these blacks that says they're building affordable housing, Go behind the, 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 the statements to see what they're talking about. Now, let me read this. The header says new affordable housing units are coming to Grays Ferry and Point Breeze. Those are neighborhoods in Philadelphia. It says more than two dozen, excuse me, uh, new homes will rise up in South Philadelphia as a part of a larger affordable housing initiative launched at the end of April. The three-bedroom homes will be built in gentrifying sections of Grace Ferry and Point Breeze through the Neighborhood Preservation Initiative. The massive bond-backed program initiated by Council President Darrell Clark. Oh, that's why he was there, Richard. Mm-hmm. To increase the city's stock of affordable housing, revive commercial corridors, and improve neighborhood infrastructures, among other priorities. The turnkey program homes will be listed for $230,000 with the opportunity to apply for a soft loan of 75000 The median sale price in both neighborhoods hover around 500000 Working class people will have the opportunity to buy a home in this neighborhood at a great price, says Councilman Kenyatta Johnson during the groundbreaking ceremony Monday uh, afternoon at 30th and Warden. Now, that's where these homes are going up, Richard, at 30th and Warden. Right. In that area. Now, that's affordable homes, Richard. $230,000. Mm-hmm. But you got a black politician, along with several others that was down there with that shovel storing the groundbreaking, said, that says this is affordable homes. Everybody in those neighborhoods won't be able to live there anymore. You don't make nowhere near the money to cover a, a mortgage of $230,000. Every resident in that area will be out of that neighborhood. And if they're not out now, when those homes get built and then they send out the new tax uh, 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 structure, then you'll be forced out. But this is under the affordable home thing. So if you don't do any homework or follow up, you'll see black politicians, oh, they building affordable homes in gentrified neighborhoods. Yeah, those homes that they're building is is help rapidly gentrifying the neighborhoods. I, I just use that as an example, Richard, that we gotta look a little deeper in what these people are talking about. Because they're selling the average black person that don't do any homework a false bill of goods. $230,000. And I didn't know, Richard, man. They said the, uh, the the median sale price for homes in the neighborhood is $500,000. I must be in the Twilight Zone. When the hell? What, why, why? I can't believe it. Yes, that's a, that's what's good, what it's going for. And the, and the odd thing about it, Richard, when they blow, because they, they do it all the time. They, I got a, a place up there in West Oak Lane. They always blowing your phone up with Texas to, uh, to mm-hmm. sell your home. They ain't talking about giving you nowhere near the, the uh, median sale price. 
They're talking about buying black people's home for five thousand, twenty thousand dollars, and they're going to fix it up and sell it for five, six, and seven hundred thousand dollars. So they're expo- mm. they exploiting the blacks that are leaving the neighborhood. And if you're behind in your taxes, some of them are forced to sell. They can't afford these taxes in these neighborhoods when these neighborhoods get reassessed. And they just did a big reassessment, Richard, what, about two, three months ago? Yep. That's going to force more black folks out of their neighborhoods. I was looking at uh, Jeffrey's district up there where, where the, the, uh, the Kakala J said he lives at, that 8th district. And since he's taken over, in fact, I had it written down here. He's taken over since 2013. The black population in that or those areas have decreased every year since then. Mm. Now, according to statistics, it's down to 48%, even though the overwhelming majority of that age district is still black. When he took over as a, a congressman in 2013, it was 53%. Each year it has decreased. Mm. Yeah, I, I just wanted to throw that out there in reference to, uh, you know, the subject matter of what we were talking about this evening. And you got to, we got to keep an eye on these people. And not only that, we got to start developing leadership that has more ethics, that is more African Senate. These people are European Senate. They're all about money. They all about the bag. What was your brother talking about there about the bag? That's all they're about. They're about money. Money over people. That's all that matters. There you go. But if you don't know who you are and you don't know your ancestors' background or your culture, then that's what you adopt. European values. There you go. Again, before we leave this evening, and again, I want to let the listening audience know about the death of uh, our esteemed colleague and host, Dr. William Rogers of Black Reality Think Tank. We're going to do a tribute to uh, William Rogers, uh, Dr. Rogers, possibly next week's program. I want to kind of coordinate things with Brother Oshie and, uh, and uh, Brother Kwaku, and we're going to put it together. But uh, we'll kind of let you know in advance. Or send out an email blast, or you'll hear it on uh, Brother Oshie's program when we're going to do something on uh, the Time for Awakening. Understand that Brother Oshie did something for him Friday on uh, <clears throat> on African Perspectives, uh, but we're going to do something on uh, Time for an Awakening, too. We might get, uh, get Brother Scotty and them to join in and uh, just give their reflections and uh, on uh, Dr. Rogers. Again, before we leave uh, the air tonight, just want to give the lineup, although it's just shortened on time for an awakening. Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, African Perspectives with Brother Oshi. Always interesting topics and dialogues on African Perspectives. That's Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. Uh, and starting up again uh, will be uh, Mississippi on the Move. Uh, that's the Black Reformation Movement down in Mississippi. Brother Patrick Lumumba is host. That's Thursdays from 7 to 8 Friday's time for awakening is back from eight until. I want to thank everybody for listening to the program this evening. Lively discussion as always. If you're driving through the country on a lazy afternoon, or you're watching.